Hello, everybody, and welcome to All In. My name is Seth, the Fun Machine. And I'm the Adventures of Bayou Eric. We found our way out of the E3 wasteland, buddy. This is cause for a celebration. Yes, there are actually a ton of things worth celebrating this week. Man, Link and Samus are going to have to take a back seat for a few days because Sonic's 30th anniversary was the talk of the internet this week. We'll cover that and talk about much more in this week's News Roundup. Man, I'm still just smiling from the Sonic Symphony. But uh, actually, speaking of all these anniversaries, a lot of people don't know this, but Lego is gearing up for its own 90th birthday next year. The iconic brick has a few irons in the fire for its own celebration, including expanding a new direction with their video game license. Our indie showcase this week is going to be Lego's meditative puzzler, Builder's Journey. Such a great game. We do have even more to celebrate, though, Eric. It's still June, so that means it's still Pride Month. Happy Pride! Yay! Yay! And we're going to send off June in style. We are celebrating all of our friends and loved ones in the LGBTQ community by counting down our top five LGBTQ-friendly Nintendo games. Yeah, definitely stick around for that. And lastly, as of a few days ago... Nintendo's 64-bit console is now 25 years old. Happy silver anniversary in 64. We actually got you something. It's an all-in retrospective. We'll be embarrassing you a little bit today with baby stories by telling everybody the circumstances that led to your birth. It's actually (laughs) one of the most interesting stories in Nintendo history. Yeah, you're absolutely right, man. But let's bust out the birthday hats and turn up that Crush 40 because it's time to get this party started. It's time to go all in. Well, everybody, we're here. We survived E3. We want to welcome new and returning listeners to All In, a Nintendo podcast, the weekly Nintendo variety show each and every Saturday. No shells left unturned and no point is left unearned. We are thrilled to be here with you today. So much to celebrate. I mean, it's, you know, you would think that in the the weeks leaving E3, it's going to be kind of a low key, you know, kind of relaxing, taking a break or whatever. But that's not the case. We have still got plenty to talk about this week. We've got a great show lined up. But before we get into all of it, sir, what's been going on with you this week? A lot, actually. Like, a lot, a lot, actually. Uh, So, let me start with, let me try to do this chronologically. Because almost right after last week's episode went live on E3, I'm pretty sure I mentioned something about getting my limited run collector's edition of Samurai Jack in the mail. So I decided just to go ahead and boot that up. I know you had talked about it a while ago here on the show, and you mentioned that you had been really enjoying it. So I thought, well, I don't want to let Seth be the only one. So (laughs) I threw it in Saturday night, and I played through it Saturday night and then finished it up Sunday evening. I played through it a couple times, actually, over the course of the past week. And all right, here's the thing, guys. Uh, I'm going to try to do this as quickly as I possibly can. I really like Samurai Jack. I do. I really, really like the game. As far as it being a Samurai Jack game, there are a ton of references. There's a ton of characters that show up from the show. The game, the actually, the opening of the game 
is the old show opening. Yes. From Cartoon Network, which is really cool. And then, of course, Samurai Jack shows up and, and all these different characters. The game itself actually picks up during the final episode. So if you haven't seen the final episode, if you haven't actually seen the series uh, finale of Samurai Jack, the game is going to be pretty spoilery because the game essentially is a companion to the ending of the series. But uh, yeah, as, as far as Samurai Jack fans go, I think there's a lot that they'll be happy with. The visual style, while it's certainly not going to be pushing the Switch to its limit graphically, I think that aesthetically the game really captures the Samurai Jack aesthetic within a 3D realm. That certainly couldn't have been an easy thing to accomplish, but I really think the game accomplishes that pretty, pretty well. And uh, the level design, I thought, was really strong. And there's there's actually quite a bit to this game. I wasn't expecting the game to be as big as it was. There's nine pretty big worlds, pretty big stages that you wind up going through. So the game will take you about six hours on your first playthrough which is a little bit longer than I honestly thought it was going to be. So kudos to them. And there is quite a bit within this game to do. There's a lot of hidden collectibles. There's a pretty expansive skill tree. This game really reminds me of a lot of those old GameCube era B-grade action platformers. Stuff like, you know, K, stuff like Tie the Tasmanian Tiger, stuff like Sphinx and the Cursed Mummy. A lot of those old B-grade action platformers from around the turn of the naughties. And I, man, I've been wanting to play a game like this for a long time, but of course, anybody who's seen Samurai Jack knows that. I mean, Samurai Jack does a lot of fighting. That's kind of his thing. There's a lot of combat that occurs in the series. So of course, combat was going to be a focal point of the game. And if you play the game on easy or even most of the way through normal, you probably won't have too hard of a time. But I got to be completely honest. There's I like just about everything else in the game. And the foundation for the combat system is a really strong foundation. It wasn't necessarily trying anything new, but they put in a lot of variety here. There's actually four or five different uh, fighting styles that Jack can use. It's not just his magic sword, his magic Aku demon slaying sword. He can use maces and spears and hammers. And mm-hmm. the the combat system is actually built around balancing ranged and melee weapons. Because in addition to all those weapons, you also have throwing stars and throwing knives and bows and arrows and even guns and machine guns that Jack can use. So there's a lot of variety and a lot of the melee all the melee fighting styles have pretty decent combo trees. So there's a lot to do. There is a lot of variety here. The game, the combat system of the game has a really good foundation. The problem is, is on top of that foundation was built basically a house of cards. And what I mean by that is once you start to add a a lot of enemies into a battle encounter, or once you start to increase the difficulty, the combat system just kind of completely falls apart. Unfortunately, there's a counter attack. There's a counter mechanic in the game. That's also supposed to be a big part of the fighting system. But unfortunately enemies have such erratic movement patterns and such 
inconsistent. That's a big word that I'm going to use with the Samurai Jack combat system is inconsistent because there's a ton of inconsistency. But the enemies have very erratic, very inconsistent attack patterns that make reliably trying to counter an attack darn near impossible. Another thing that makes it inconsistent is the guarding itself feels inconsistent. So uh, in multiple ways, actually. Sometimes it'll trigger the way it's supposed to. Sometimes it'll take a couple seconds to trigger. And even on top of that, once you start to get into the higher difficulties, there are some times that it just won't guard, like somehow just will not guard and attack. And then there's a ton of attacks that are apparently unblockable sometimes. And then there are a bunch of other attacks that can easily break your guard and then you can just immediately get comboed and stunned with another enemy follow-up attack. So just the, the whole act of guarding and countering is incredibly inconsistent. And there's a ton of enemies that use a lot of projectile weapons. And it's just kind of a coin flip with them. You don't know whether or not you're going to have to guard because their shots just could fly wildly off into the distance. Or they could just immediately home into you like they are a sniper. So I just, there's a lot of, uh, I've had enemies teleport to me. There's unreactable, unblockable grabs that you just kind of have to deal with. The enemies just kind of jet around the screen a lot of the time. I had an enemy like straight up teleport to me. So there's, and I'm, I'm honestly not even scratching the surface. I really, really like Samurai Jack Battle Through Time. I really do. I had a lot of fun with it, but it's a hard game to recommend just because the combat does wind up being so broken. I didn't actually even finish playing through hard mode. The furthest I got through hard mode, and this is another big inconsistency with the combat system, I got stuck on a boss for a good hour or so just because, <sighs> just because I, I mean, it was basically a coin flip. I, I just had to get lucky. They were throwing out, again, unreactable, unblockable attacks. The counter system was completely inconsistent. The way I wound up beating this boss was somehow I wound up getting them stuck in some combo loop. Typically, the boss fights are supposed to be multiple stages where they visibly power up. But somehow, uh, I glitched the game. Somehow, I wound up finding a weird loop in the game and caught this boss in a combo string and just did that until they died. So the only way I was even able to beat this boss was by somehow unknowingly exploiting uh, a programming error in the game. So if you play it on easy and again, most of the way through normal, you probably won't have too bad of a time. You'll probably enjoy the game quite a bit. And if you are a Samurai Jack fan, maybe take a look at it, but as, as, as many things as there are for me to really enjoy about the game, it is still ultimately a hard game for me to outwardly recommend just because of how, of how much the combat system falls apart under any scrutiny. But I don't know. The statue I got from Limited Run Games is still really cool, though. <laughs> That's fair. I mean, yeah, I never played it on hard. So, I mean, I didn't experience the, the issues you had. I mean, it sounds annoying and frustrating, though. Um, but yeah, for like playing it just on normal, like you were saying for me was totally fine. Like it was 
not great. It's not like some 10 out of 10 masterpiece experience, but yeah. yeah, I mean, if, if you're looking to scratch that GameCube era, you know, B grade platformer action game itch, like the licensed games of that time, there, there is a certain nostalgia there. And I think it does kind of tap into it. It's totally worth wish listing and seeing like grab it on a sale or something like that. Yeah. But if you do decide to play it at higher difficulties, just, you know, maybe perform some breathing exercises beforehand. But speaking of breathing exercises and kind of coming down from frustration and stuff like that, I decided to, you know, just say forget all that and just compound my frustration as a matter of fact, because I got on a really big fighting game kick this week too, man. I obviously we're a Nintendo podcast, but there is one game. This is how much of a fighting game guy I am is there is one game that's not coming out for the Nintendo switch that I absolutely need. And it's not as much as I think Forza horizon five looks phenomenal. It's not that it's not even God of war Ragnarok. It's not any of these amazing blockbuster releases. The game that I'm honestly the non Nintendo game that I'm most excited for is King of fighters 15. And I really wish it would come to the Nintendo Switch. They've been releasing weekly trailers for it. And I've just get, been getting more and more excited. And it, it put me on this fighting game kick this past week. So I found myself at 2 a.m. on the Nintendo eShop just looking at all the different King of Fighters games. All the different Neo Geo releases that are on the Nintendo Switch. Of which there are, I mean, it feels like the entire Neo Geo library is currently available to download on the Nintendo Switch. It is insane. Yeah. But I was just looking at all the different King of Fighters games that were on the Nintendo Switch eShop at 2 in the morning. And lo and behold, I actually get a message from a friend of mine uh, just randomly out of the blue at 2 in the morning. He said, hey, it was just my birthday. And I kind of remember that your birthday comes a little bit after mine. So I just wanted to get you this. And as I was staring at the Nintendo eShop at 2 in the morning... I get one of my friends to send me a $20 Nintendo shop e-card. Nice. <laughs> That's awesome. So, so thank you, Robert. I really appreciate that, buddy. Thank you so much. But it was kind of fate. I was like, well, you know, it's, I, I can't really spend it on anything other than a King of Fighters game. I feel so. Right. So I immediately downloaded King of Fighters 2002 on my Nintendo switch. And I have played, a lot of King of Fighters 2002 on my Nintendo Switch this past week as well. I I just, especially after Capcom versus SNK2 came out back in 2001, which is my favorite fighting game of all time. Uh, I've just been so enamored with SNK fighters. I was vaguely aware of stuff like Fatal Fury and Art of Fighting and and stuff like that, but it wasn't until Capcom versus SNK that I was able to get really familiar with a lot of those old SNK fighters like Samurai Showdown or World Heroes and, and stuff like that. So, you know, I've only I've only ever actually owned a couple King of Fighters games. I actually owned King of Fighters EX Neo Blood 2 or whatever on the Game Boy Advance, and I adored King of Fighters EX2. But... Uh, I've I've become incredibly knowledgeable about the history of SNK. Terry is in Fighting EX Lair on the Nintendo Switch, which I've talked about already several times. Terry's obviously in Smash Brothers, so there's all there's, it almost feels like this resurgence of SNK in the past few years. Samurai Showdown, the new Samurai Showdown's also on the Nintendo Switch, so 
I just, I, everything just kind of put me in this, like, I need to play fighting games. And for those who have never played an SNK fighting game, talk about compounding frustration. You know, you want to talk about Shao Kahn, you want to talk about Seth from Street Fighter 4, you want to talk about any of these other fighting game bosses as being cheap or uh, frustrating. They have nothing on SNK bosses. I'm just telling you right now. God Rugal, you Rugal, whatever he's called, the American version, but God Rugal from Capcom versus SNK 2 is one of the most insane fights that I've ever had. And it's, ironically enough, Shinakuma from an SNK game, SVC Chaos, back on the original Xbox is insane. And just most of the King of Fighters bosses are stupid. And King of Fighters 2002 is no exception whatsoever. Even on the lowest difficulty, I still needed an additional handicap to beat Jeez. this guy. It's so bad. It's so bad. I love it so much. I really do. There's even, even working on the Neo Geo, there's dozens of playable characters. I, I love quite a bit of them. But just trying to fight Rugal is oh my lord it's just such an input reading piece of garbage like you hit a jab and he immediately counters with this screen filling super that takes half your health like you can't you honestly can't even jab against this character it basically just decides when it wants to let you win which is never so oh man i i love it so much but if, if, if anybody thinks they know what true cheap final bosses in fighting games are, play a few King of Fighters, play a few SNK games. I encourage you. Uh, but yeah, keep your hair out of reach of your hands. But after all that, after compounding a lot of that frustration, and I could, I could keep talking about King of Fighters 2002 for a while, uh, it blows my mind that game is working on the same hardware as the original Fatal Fury and the original Art of Fighting. Blows my mind that that game is on the same console as those others. Good Lord, the Neo Geo is an unheralded console. But moving away from all that, I, I did certainly need something to put a smile on my face. I did certainly need something to even me out here in the middle of the week. And dude, um, Sega to the rescue. Sega had an awesome week this week, man. Man. So the 30th anniversary of the release of Sonic the Hedgehog 1 was this past week. And to celebrate, Sega had a virtual concert. And we've mm -hmm. had a couple of these. They called it the Sonic Symphony. We've had a couple of these virtual concerts over the past year, especially. And I, th I think for a lot of people, mostly the standout was probably that Paper Mario, the Origami King one from last year. That was really cool. That featured a lot of musicians, you know, because we all still had to social distance and because the vaccines hadn't been rolled out yet. Everybody was just all the different orchestral members were doing it from their homes. And it was really cool to see all of them individually on webcam playing their instruments in casual clothes from their home. But even on top of that, the music was really cool. But that was a really fun little thing. And then we had the Pokemon 25th anniversary quote unquote concert that was only like 15 minutes long and featured a bizarrely animated post Malone virtually traveling throughout the Pokemon world. So that was kind of the benchmark that we had for these virtual concerts going in to Wednesday. They're fun, but for the most part, they had been, you know, just little more than novelty distractions. Yeah. The, the Sonic's 30th anniversary symphony was 
like definitely more high standard. I mean the the um the line them up thing that was a fan made uh, orchestral performance. And then yeah, when you talk about the Pokemon thing, that wasn't really what it was made out to be. That was kind of disappointing. We we liked it overall, but it was kind of disappointing. So coming into this, we didn't really know what to expect. We certainly didn't expect it to be like a what two hour yeah symphony performance covering the entire history of the Sonic franchise. Yeah, I was honestly expecting this to go the same route as many of those others, you know, maybe 20 minutes of some orchestral Sonic medleys. Cool. Well done, guys. That was fun. But no, it was done in two parts. The The concert was so long, there was an actual intermission right. in the middle of it. The first hour was just nothing but symphony orchestra medleys of various Sonic games, starting from the original Sonic the Hedgehog. And again, it's just an hour of orchestral Sonic the Hedgehog music. And it was fantastic. And then at the end of that, they they bring up the Sonic 30th anniversary logo. And I'm like, oh, that was that was really cool. That was a lot longer than I thought it was going to be, but that was really good. I was like, just sec, intermission. What what is it? There's an inter there's more? <laughs> yeah. And sure enough. Coming out of the intermission, actually very briefly, during the intermission, the man who scored the first two Sonic games announced that he's going to be releasing a new single, taking the music from Green Hill Zone and adding lyrics to it. So I really want to hear that, especially after this concert. I really want to hear that. His band is called Dreams Come True, and they're releasing a new single with the music from Green Hill Zone with new lyrics. So I definitely want to check that out when it happens. But coming out of the intermission, which, by the way, was a live camera of a chow garden, which was a chef's kiss beautiful touch, they did a live version of my favorite Sonic song throughout the entire Blue Blur's history. They did a live rock version of Sonic Colors, Reach for the Stars, and it made Eric so happy. Yeah, that was great. So happy. Yeah, so there are there are a lot of great um, kind of remixes or or um, kind of treatments of some of these songs. That was definitely a standout. But I mean, it was all over for me when they got. And we knew coming into it that Crush Forty was going to be there. Yeah, but Crush Forty was there. <laughs> it was so great. Basically, I'm pretty sure every song within the history of Sonic the Hedgehog that's ever had lyrics was performed as part of this concert. They had mm-hmm. City Escape. They had it's just all of them. They had communication. And of course, of course, they had to end with the Crush 40 classic, Live and Learn. Again, I've, I've mentioned that I'm still partial to Reach for the Stars. But you know what? I respect Crush 40 and I respect Live and Learn. That was, I knew that was going to end the concert. And they didn't just, they even had an encore segment. They even yeah. made it look like they were they were coming down like they were finishing the concert and then these words just showed up on the screen like you want one more song you want what like all caps and the words just keep getting bigger and bigger like treating it like it's an actual IRL in person concert and it really had that energy especially the second half really had that kind of energy it just and it was such a great change of pace from the first hour of orchestral symphony but it was all just it was it was just this massive nostalgia casserole with all these different amazing flavors. Oh man, like it was just two hours of me smiling from ear to ear. It was 
I'm not even, this is no hyperbole when I say this. I genuinely mean this. I think it may be my favorite piece of video game related media that I've ever seen. Like it was that good. If you haven't checked out the Sonic 30th anniversary symphony, you absolutely need to, I'm going to twist Seth's arm behind his back to make sure he puts the link for that in the episode description. (laughs) Don't worry. I was already going to, don't worry. (laughs) No arm twisting necessary, but it was just so good. And I tweeted this out toward the end of the concert. And I 100% mean this. I need a Blu-ray. Like, I need to be able to own that concert. I know it's on YouTube and I can watch it for free. Yes, I get that. But I, I, I just feel like I need to own this. I need the CD. I need to have it on Spotify. I need to own this concert. It was amazing. It was that good. And social media absolutely blew up. There was, oh man, just Sonic's 30th birthday in general was so great. There was so much love and it just made it even better. Yeah, I mean, there's honestly the vibe coming out of it was like, this is how you celebrate the anniversary of a franchise, you know? And like, I couldn't help but like, just feel a little heartbroken while I'm watching as amazing as it was. And by the way, my favorite thing about this was the way that the, the like Sega and, and Sonic, ha- they're really embracing the entire history of the character because not for nothing, like we love Sonic as much as the next guy, but like, the you know the history of sonic has more bad games than good games at this point you know but they were so earnest and like the entire history bad and good was represented during this orchestra and and during the symphony and i i just thought that was so endearing i i loved that so much and but yeah the whole time i'm watching it i'm like this is what we should have gotten for zelda you know what i mean like this is what we should have gotten for zelda's 35th even if there wasn't going to be like some big blowout campaign or whatever, getting a celebration of a franchise like this, just it, it, it just made me wish I had that for, for Zelda. And it was just so great. It was just this huge day long celebration on social media. So many influencers and YouTubers and people within the video games community came out to help celebrate it. And the concert just threw everything, just set everything to 11. There was even this amazing video from the set of Sonic 2 where they blew up a a 30th birthday cake from the set of Sonic 2 that had all the cast and crew in the background. They even did that for Sonic's 30th. And um, it was just so, so good. And you're absolutely right. When you see what Sonic did, yes, we know Sonic is working hard on the next game. We know we have Sonic Colors Ultimate coming out in September. We know we've got a new Sonic Origins collection. We've got all this Sonic merch coming later on this year. Yes, Nintendo did a great job, a fantastic job, in our opinion, with Mario's 35th anniversary. But... We look at the anniversaries that are happening in Nintendo's world this year, like Seth said, like Zelda's 35th anniversary. Nintendo didn't even acknowledge the 35th anniversary of Zelda on the day. There wasn't even a tweet. Yeah. Nintendo (laughs) posts multiple times a day to their social media to hype up upcoming games and to advertise products that they've worked on or that they've released multiple times a day, and yet on the 35th anniversary of Zelda, there was nothing. There was no acknowledgement of the Nintendo 64's 25th anniversary. Exactly, yeah. How in the world do you overshadow the 25th anniversary of the Nintendo 64 on 
the Nintendo 64's 25th birthday. Sonic did it because, again, just like with Zelda's 35th anniversary, Nintendo did nothing. They mentioned nothing about it. There wasn't a single mention on Nintendo's social media of the Silver Anniversary of one of their biggest consoles of all time. That blew my mind. Yeah, I I hope that this Sonic Symphony, really, because, I mean, you're right, the internet was painted blue that day. You know what I yeah. mean? There were blue hearts everywhere. We tweeted out blue hearts. I mean, the internet was was totally all about Sonic that day. Sega definitely won the Newsweek, right? But I, but I hope Nintendo looks at something like this and they take away from it, okay, like, especially in today's world, we want to celebrate. You know what I mean? We want a reason to celebrate the things we love. Give us that. Provide us these platforms to celebrate these anniversaries. It's worth it. It's just because I can't reconcile the fact that Nintendo is very clearly giving everything they have into making these games. They're clearly putting everything they have into making Metroid Dread. They're clearly putting everything they have into making Breath of the Wild 2 or whatever it's going to wind up being called. But I cannot reconcile how much effort they're clearly putting into that with the fact that they won't even mention these amazing milestone anniversaries of some of their most beloved products and IPs. When you have people like like the Sonic 30th anniversary made me want to give Sega and Sonic all my money this year. Yeah. Yep. So Nintendo, we get it. You're working very hard on your games, but like Seth, if you were working on something for Anastasia's birthday, that you told her was probably going to take a little while and she probably wasn't going to get it on her birthday. She'd be okay with that, right? Right. But if you forgot to actually tell her happy birthday on her birthday. <laughs> yep. yep. She wouldn't that's, be like, I mean, that's it. oh, it's okay. He's working on something. He doesn't actually need to tell me happy birthday on my birthday. Yeah. And then like months later, if I was just like, actually, I'm not doing anything for your birthday, but here's <laughs> a game and watch, <laughs> you know, I'm not bitter. But yeah, it's just, uh, yeah. Ultimately, we would love to see Nintendo treat their legendary IPs with a little bit more respect on social media because at optics at the very least, at the very least. But yeah. yes, we, we don't want to make this about Nintendo. I, I absolutely want to make this about just how amazing that Sonic 30th Anniversary Symphony was. Again, was if, you haven't, if you haven't watched it and you're even remotely interested in video game music you definitely need to check it out it was so so good i need a blu-ray i need all of it in my face but the last thing i'm very briefly going to mention is the fact that we did get a couple new demos on the nintendo switch eShop this past week we got demos for this brand new game we've never heard of called monster hunter stories 2 and neo the world ends with you. Both games, both JRPGs that are coming out next month that we are very much looking forward to. And I actually got a chance to sit down and play through the Monster Hunter Stories 2 demo. It Man, I'm getting really strong Dragon Quest vibes from that game. I really am very strong traditional RPG style vibes from that game. I'm not going to say the demo blew me away. The game looks really cool and... There's a lot. There's certainly a lot going on. It's definitely a Monster Hunter game. There's resource collecting all over the place. You can't go three steps without running into, you know, a, a patch of blueberries or a pile of bones that you can collect or a pile of or a 
you know, big ore crystal that you can mine. There's a ton of that. There's a ton of different monster hunter tropes in this game. And the combat seems, I think, a lot more complicated than it really is. There's a lot going on. But one of the things that simplifies it quite a bit is the fact that you only actually have control over a single character for the majority of the fight, which, considering you have four people in your party, is kind of weird. Of course, yes, I know in the core Monster Hunter games, you only have control of your primary character. But if you're going to make something a party-based, turn-based RPG and have four characters on your side who all have their own individual attacks and skills, but only give you direct control over a single one of them, I just, I think that's weird. I really think that's weird. That and... I think the movement and the camera movement could use a little tweak. Not that they're bad, but I think they mm. could use a little tweaking. But ultimately, I still think the game looks good. I do still think the game looks like it's going to, to do pretty well. There was certainly a lot to do within the demo. Within 15 minutes, within the first couple story missions, there's already 10 people trying to give you submissions and trying to give you sure. extra stuff to do. And once you actually get out into the map that you have access to for the demo, there's just a ton of stuff that you can already see that there is going to be to do. So the game is going to have a multitude of content, a multitude of quests to go on and a ton of stuff to do. I'm not ready to say that it's going to be amazing. I'm ready to say that it's probably going to be good, but I do feel like I would need more than the admittedly already pretty long demo gives me. But that's one of the curses of JRPGs. You know, you've really got to play it for 10, 15 right. hours before you really like, before you feel like you really have a good grip on anything. But I, again, it's a free demo. Check it out for yourself. If you're a Monster Hunter fan, if you're interested at all in Monster Hunter, I do recommend checking out the demo of Monster Hunter Stories 2. We'll see. We'll see. I'm not 100,000% sold on it yet, but they did enough with the demo to make me optimistic. Nice. Yeah, I want to play it. I want to play it. I'm sure, yeah. I'm, I know you didn't have time for the Monster Hunter Stories 2 demo because I played the Monster Hunter Stories 2 demo, but I have nothing on the the number of demos that you've played this past week. <laughs> yeah, uh, I want to point folks to the YouTube channel for a few reasons. A, because you have uploaded um, two new episodes of Gamer Glossary that folks should check out, both on the Peggy Age ratings and on the concept of DLC. Indeed. So definitely, definitely head over to the All End YouTube channel. Links in the description to check those out. But in addition to that, uh, yes, I this past Sunday had the day off and I spent basically the entire day producing videos for the YouTube channel, playing demos in the Steam Next Fest, which very, very briefly what that is, it basically is an initiative that Steam did. They did it last year too, kind of in the absence of E3. And Effectively, it's hundreds. There's like 700 plus um, demos for upcoming independent games that are made available to download on Steam. And I was kind of frustrated because I wasn't able to find online a good index or repository for some of these games that were coming to Switch. Because I was like, okay, like maybe I'll try out some of these demos for some of the upcoming Switch games get kind of a taste for them and, and see like the, you know, cause some of them are fairly prolific. Some of the games that were on there, but nobody online that I could find had a good index for that. And I was like, you know what? I'm just going to make it. 
I'm just going to do that. So I put in the research. I looked up some of the most prolific games that were taking part of Steam Next Fest. And some of them I already knew were coming to Switch. Some of them I had never heard about before, but are coming to Switch. And in all, I wound up producing five videos on the YouTube channel, playing through five Steam Next Fest demos for games, all of which are confirmed for Switch release. And very, very quickly, um, I'll just kind of go through. I want you guys to go and watch those videos because um, I'm proud of the way they all turned out. Um, so the first one I played was Baron Breakfast, which is a upcoming like kind of Animal Crossing Sims-like house building kind of thing. Wasn't necessarily my cup of tea. It's not necessarily the kind of game that I that I find myself getting into, but my wife loved it. And if you are looking for a game like this, if you're looking for a Sims-like experience, a kind of like Zoo Tycoon, you know, management kind of experience with a little bit of like Animal Crossing crafting and stuff and customization worked in, I, I think that it's going to scratch that itch for a lot of people really, really well, even if it's not necessarily my cup of tea. Um, but I still enjoyed it. I ended up playing through that demo and, and I still, you know, I enjoyed it overall. You can watch me struggle with the, you know, with the house building mechanics and all that. If you want to see that, um, the next one I played was Kataria fables, which is a game that I've been looking forward to for a little while. And it's a very simple kind of like isometric view, cute RPG where you play as a cat. And you play, you know, in this world full of animals and it's very adorable. Sold. Yeah, I mean, basically, yeah, right? I mean, it's it's very adorable. It reminds me a lot of the Ocean Horn games. Like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, like just very, you know, I mean, it's like harmless, like totally cute, fun little games. Like it's not going to be super deep or like, you know, it, it's it's it knows exactly what it is. Um, and I, yeah, I was really charmed by it. I really liked it. That demo was actually so long. I played like over an hour and I had to call it at a certain point because I was like, how long is this demo? <laughs> so uh, the video ended up being an hour long. Uh, the next game I'll talk about is a game called Death Trash, which I was very enamored with. I had never even heard of it before. It is a very mature rated game. Like I issued a mature content warning right at the start of that video. And I'm glad I did, <laughs> but um, this is like a old school isometric RPG in the style of like fallout or wasteland or Baldur's gate or something like that. And yeah, made by an indie team. Very impressive. It's got this kind of like Lovecraftian John Carpenter's the thing kind of vibe to it. It takes place on a world made of flesh. I mean, it's like it's out there. It's all the fun there. of the family. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. All the fun, all the fun for the entire family, but yeah, no, but it's got gorgeous pixel art, good writing, very deep mechanics. That was one where I was after playing that, I was like, okay, I'm sold. Like, I don't want to play anymore. I'm sold. Um, road 96, which made waves during the indie world showcase. I was a little less enamored with, but the game is very ambitious and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing how all of the parts connect. It kind of has a telltale games kind of vibe kind of has this, like, you know, you're making decisions that are constantly impacting the way the story will go to hear the developers tell it the game will have hundreds, if not thousands of different permutations. No two stories are supposed to be the same, very ambitious. I'm, I'm, 
you know, it's a very short demo, but I'm very intrigued. Seems like it's going to have a lot of replayability. So one to keep the eye out open for. Um, it's supposed to be coming out this summer. So the, the full retail release should be pretty soon. Um, and last but not least, I'll quickly touch on Unpacking, which is a game I fell in love with. Right up there, this and Death Trash were probably my two favorite demos I played. It is a puzzle game, ostensibly, where it's all about just unpacking a room. It starts off in, in 1997 in a, a kid's bedroom, and you've got boxes, and it's got this really pleasant pixel art and amazing little chiptune soundtrack, very chill. And it's just kind of this experience where you're just taking things out of boxes and arranging them and organizing your room. And it sounds really simple, and it is, but there's just something so nostalgic. If you ever, like growing up, if you ever had those days where you just cleaned your room and organized your room, that's what this game is. And you're pulling out Game Boys and Tamagotchis and Lisa Frank posters, and it's just so much 90s nostalgia. I I really enjoyed it. And then, like, it's got a bit of a life-affirming quality to it, because then the next scene is in 2004, and your character is moving into their new apartment, but you're still pulling out some of your childhood things, but maybe they look a little bit smaller now because you're an adult now, or maybe they're a little more worn with time. There's something kind of emotional to it. I don't know. Unpacking. I really liked it. It's, It's definitely, when this comes to Switch later this year, that's a day one buy for me. And it's a game about unpacking things. That's the thing. Yeah. Like, I couldn't believe that they decided to make a game based around unpacking boxes. Because I hate having to unpack. Because I've moved a lot. So I have grown a pretty fervent dislike for the act of packing and unpacking all my stuff up. And the fact that some studio out there decided to base a puzzle video game around this concept. You know, A, brave. That's a that's a bold move, Cotton. We'll see if it pans out. <laughs> but two, to the fact to hear that it's that it might actually be good, that's kind. Of, I, I'm going to have to check it out. I really am. As much as I IRL loathe the thought of having to pack and unpack stuff, I'm morbidly curious what this game is actually going to play like. I yeah, I would point everybody to to the video again. Um, all these videos are live on the YouTube channel right now. I think it's the kind of game where you can take a look at it and and know if it's for you or not. I I really really liked it. I I came away from that very impressed and I'm looking forward to playing the full version. Um speaking of the YouTube channel, another thing that I just wanted to shout out really quickly before we move on from our longest what we've been up to segment of all time. <laughs> um I uh I want to shout out the Super Monkey Ball 20th anniversary. Uh, yet another anniversary, Eric, that happened this week. Yeah. And in celebration of that, I have got a new episode of Keep Nintendo Weird that is going live this coming Wednesday, and it is going to be Super Monkey Ball themed. I It was really cool because I got to record it on the anniversary day. I linked up with a uh, YouTuber named Cardano that I am a new fan of and uh, and got to chat with him and just gush with him about Super Monkey Ball in celebration of the anniversary. Just just marinating and hype over banana mania and just sharing our love of the series. And it was a great conversation. And uh, so you guys stay tuned for a new episode of keep Nintendo weird next Wednesday, all about super monkey balls, 20th anniversary. So that's what's, that's what I have going on. And uh, that's, what's been going on for me this week. I'm looking forward to playing these demos. 
uh, this weekend. Looking forward to playing some Mario Golf Super Rush this weekend, which just came out. Yes. So, yeah. Yes. Very happy to start hitting the greens. Yeah. Well, um, I mean, it's been very clearly a very slow week for both of us. <laughs> so I guess we really shouldn't uh, belabor the point anymore. I guess it's time to actually talk about the news, the goings on within the video game world. What do you say, buddy? Let's do it. So while Nintendo has been surprisingly quiet about new additions and improvements to next month's release of The Legend of Zelda Skyward Sword HD, the newly launched website for the game states that it features, quote, various quality of life enhancements, including refinements to player tutorials and general guidance throughout the adventure, end quote. Now, Nintendo has not revealed what these enhancements are, but I think it's kind of noteworthy because it is nice to hear that the game is a bit more, at least, than just a standard remaster. Obviously, we know that we've got the Loftwing Amiibo, which has some functionality in it. But otherwise, Nintendo has kept it very close to the chest in terms of what is actually being changed in Skyward Sword HD. So it is nice to hear that they're going to uh, have some kind of, they say, tutorial and guidance enhancements, which for anybody who's played Skyward Sword, that basically means Fee's going to talk less. (laughs) So, you know, there's that. You know, it's amazing that we open up with this, given that our soundbite going into the news is Navi. That's true. That's true. <laughs> but yeah, Skyward Sword comes out next month. And obviously they talked about the button controls since anybody who's played Skyward Sword knows that it was very much a motion control vehicle back when it came mm-hmm. out. So Nintendo was very upfront about that. But, you know, people were asking, he was like, okay, cool. Awesome. Great. Good to know. Anything else? And Nintendo was like, mm, maybe we'll tell you. So it's nice to know that we are finding out that that's not going to be the only upgrade. The fact that they, it looks like they have gone in and actually tweaked a few things for the better. And it, I think companies are starting to more and more jump on this train. It's the fact that just a new coat of paint really isn't good enough with a lot of right. these remakes and remasters. Uh, you know, a lot of small gameplay tweaks and refinements was another thing that they talked about Sonic Colors Ultimate. So very happy to see that. Very happy to see, you know, a lot of little improvements. You don't want to change the gameplay experience too much. When you start changing things, there's always that risk that you're moving away from the game and how it fundamentally feels. Right. But... If you're going to take the time to remake or remaster something, it should essentially, I think, be a version of the game that would have been released in 2020 or 2021 or 2022. Yeah, what's what's really nice, too, about this is that that is ostensibly one of the major complaints that people have with Skyward Sword. It never really bothered me personally, but the the hand-holdy nature, the overlong tutorials in the beginning of that game, again, we don't know exactly what they're doing. But it does sound like Nintendo is at least aware of that. And with Skyward Sword HD, they're going to at least have the option to scale some of that back. So I think that's going to be nothing but a good thing. And I think people will play this and and come away from the game a lot more positively than they did back in 2011. So yeah, I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. But we've got a Pokemon story to talk about real quick. Obviously, it's the 25th anniversary of the Pokemon franchise this year. In addition to, it feels like every other franchise's anniversary going on in 2021. But in addition to doing a ton of stuff, in addition to releasing a new base set, bringing back some of the original Pokemon cards 
for the Pokemon TCG. They're doing something kind of nuts. The Pokemon company has partnered with low-cost Japanese airline Skymark to launch a Pikachu-themed aircraft called the Pikachu Jet BC. And just as a little 25th anniversary detail, unless there was any doubt that this was being done to celebrate the silver anniversary of the Pokemon franchise, the 25th row of seats on the jet is going to feature a Pikachu with balloons. Fun little design. I mean, how cute is that? You know, like that's that's such a nice little touch. I wonder how much one of those costs. Yeah, tell me about it. That is going to be a hot ticket. And if you do manage to get a ticket, you ain't getting a ticket in that 25th row. (laughs) So, yeah, that's just just kind of a cute little story. Nothing really much to, to take away from that. But it's, you know, again, it's nice to celebrate. It's nice to celebrate an anniversary. And the Pokemon Company is certainly doing a lot of that. There's a lot of people with a Pokemon-themed bucket, like Pokemon super fans with a Pokemon-themed bucket list out there that are just scratching their head in frustration and replacing their number one like, ah! <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it would be it would be super cool to like book a flight to Japan and be on a Pikachu-themed airline. I mean, how cool is that? Uh, I love it. Well, uh, our next story here is kind of an interesting one because it deals with Forever Entertainment, who was in the news recently because they're heading up a House of the Dead remake that you're very excited for. Oh, so excited. They're also behind the recently released Panzer Dragoon remake, but uh, they recently announced a new partnership with Nintendo. Uh, This deal will have Nintendo essentially publishing and providing financial backing for games made for the Switch. And notably, Forever Entertainment recently entered into a similar partnership with Square Enix. Now, Forever Entertainment, like I said, did make some ports. They have made some original games that have been kind of met with lukewarm reception. They're definitely most known for their ports, though. And them partnering up with Nintendo is a really interesting prospect. Uh, We were talking about these Square Enix games like this. This kind of like era of games is what they're familiar with, like this kind of Dreamcast PS1 kind of era, it almost makes me wonder if Nintendo is tapping them to do some work to some N64 games. I don't know. I What it makes me think of is six certain JRPGs that are getting remastered for Steam and mobile. Maybe that's just me trying to throw it out into the ether. Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it never will. But... Uh, I would like to think so. Obviously, Square Enix has a ton of classic games from just about every generation. So I'd be, and obviously we're seeing a lot of that right now. We've got recent remasters of Saga Frontier and Legend of Mana a couple days ago. So, you know, kind of this mid-90s era of JRPGs and Square Enix games, it just seems like it's a well that companies are going back to right now in earnest. So, We'll see. If I had my way, I would say bring those Steam and Mobile remakes of Final Fantasy 1 through 6 to the Nintendo Switch the way it should be. Well, it's it's funny. I think I mentioned this um, when we first talked about Forever Entertainment inking the deal with Square. I think that it's more likely because, again, they're working with games like Panzer Dragoon and House of the Dead. I would like to see them tackle games like Soul Reaver, um, which oh is also... God now in Square Enix's catalog um, games like that, even like the, the old Tomb Raider games, like they, they, the stuff that Square owns in that era of gaming, 
I, I think is, is kind of right in the wheelhouse of what forever entertainment's already working on. And that's why my, my head's kind of spinning a little bit of like, okay, what, like, what could they have to be working with, with Nintendo? And so, I mean, who knows? I, I I'm eager to hear more about this partnership, but I'm, I'm kind of like wondering if this is going to end up with some N64 ports. I hope so. Dude, just talking about Soul Reaver. Oh, man, I would love <laughs> if you've never played Soul Reaver and Soul Reaver 2 back on the PlayStation 1 and PlayStation 2. Soul Reaver is a phenomenal game. It's the sequel to Legacy of Cain Blood Omen, which was kind of a top down dungeon crawler game. But Soul Reaver was a full on three like Zelda like 3D action adventure title. And it was absolutely fantastic. And Raziel, the main character of Soul Reaver, is legit one of the coolest video game characters ever created. I mean, he's a re- reincarnated, you know, burnt-alive, zombified, eternal vampire with a sol- literally a soul sword coming out of his hand like a massive green ethereal wolverine claw. And... He, he talks in the most effluent Shakespearean tone. He was just amazing. Raziel is just one of the greatest video game characters of all time. I would absolutely be down. You know what? Forget the Final Fantasy 1 through 6 stuff. Give me Raziel. I need my boy back. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, speaking of things and, you know, things coming back, ports, we uh, we do have some kind of kind of uh, interesting news coming out of Australian and South Korean ratings boards. This is something that's been cropping up here lately uh, because it looks like Konami has been filing for the Castlevania Advance Collection to be rated. This has not been officially confirmed or anything like that. Um, we don't have any like artwork or any any sort of thing, but that that listing has popped up on Australian and South Korean ratings boards looking very likely to be a thing. And what we can assume this is Castlevania Advance Collection has got to be the Castlevania Game Boy Advance games, which, by the way, were excellent. Yeah. Um, Aria of Sorrow, Harmony of Dissonance, and Circle of the Moon, low key, like some of the best games on the Game Boy Advance. People forget these were being released annually at this point, and they were all excellent. Bring that on. I hope it's real. Yeah, we haven't ever gotten Symphony of the Night on a Nintendo console, but after Symphony of the Night, Konami basically was just like, we'll keep doing that. And they certainly did. I talked about last week about Metroid Dread and the fact that we haven't seen a console AAA Metroidvania in a long time. However, for a for a considerable stretch of time, the Game Boy Advance and the Nintendo DS were home to some amazing triple-A Metroidvanias. You had mm-hmm. the Mega Man Zero games and the ZX games, which I will take any opportunity to talk about. And then you had these titles. You had these amazing follow-ups to Castlevania Symphony of the Night. Once they did, once Konami did Symphony of the Night, like they had that formula and they just tweaked it a little bit each game, but it was still fantastic each game. They had three games on the Game Boy Advance. They, I think they had another three on the Nintendo DS, like they were just just churning out fantastic Castlevania Metroidvanias every year or so for almost a decade. And a lot of the the handheld games kind of get lost when you 
compare them to their console counterparts, but the Game Boy Advance and the Nintendo DS have a ton of all-time classics in their library, and I would very, very much love to see these games come to it. Imagine if they even just up them just a little bit, not even a full remaster. Just, you know, give them a little bit of a touch-up, and I would buy that for a dollar. <laughs> certainly, certainly. Yeah, I hope they just kind of like up it don't touch the pixel art because i love the pixel art i mean the, but these games were so good on the game boy advance i mean legitimately aria of sorrow for me is just one step removed from symphony of the night as the best castlevania game like it's that good and uh these would legitimately be day one purchases if and when they come to fruition and yeah so i mean bring it on i i, I hope we get an official announcement for this castlevania advance collection very soon yeah, it is worth noting that it, it we don't have an official announcement yet. However, you know, having seen listings on official retail websites is, you know, basically just writing on the wall. Right. Yeah, things don't you have to pay to get things rated and listed, so it's it's not the kind of thing where it's not like a Wikipedia article or something like that where anybody can just throw that in there. Um, the the fact that things are getting rated and listed means that it's almost certainly representative of a real product. And it's a real product that I hope we get very soon. And given the track record, it's I, we could probably expect a limited run physical edition of that one at some point in the oh. future. Yeah, tell me about it. Lots of Game Boy Advance love floating around these days, and it makes me very happy. Absolutely. Actually, speaking of Game Boy Advance, so it turns out, surprising absolutely no one, that following the announcement of Metroid Dread at last week's E3, you know, it looks like people are all of a sudden really interested in buying up old Metroid games, specifically Zero Mission and Metroid Fusion, which immediately shot to the top of the sales charts on the Wii U Virtual Console. And there were even a lot of other outlets talking about, you know, the the spike, we'll just call it charitably, the spike in demand for previous Metroid titles. It's, oh. you, you talked about it last week when we were talking about Metroid Dread, that this series has unfortunately never really seen the same sales numbers that a lot of Nintendo's other marquee franchises have. But right. it, it looks like Metroid Dread is almost single-handedly retroactively fixing that problem. <laughs> it's pretty intense. And a lot of this is because those, like... The fact that you can go on the Wii U eShop and download those games for, I think, $7.99 is the easiest way to get a hold of those games. Because if you try to uh, get them on original hardware, the prices immediately skyrocketed. Zero Mission was always an expensive game. Yeah, but it was. Fusion, Fusion went from being like a $40 game to now being like a $70 game. So... Yeah, it's it is quite literally the announcement of Metroid Dread has made that a hot commodity. And what I'm hoping this shows Nintendo is that people want access to Game Boy Advance in particular has become such a hot commodity. And like people want access to these games. And I just bring GBA to to NSO. Just please. It is worth noting that Nintendo 3DS and specifically Metroid Samus return prices are also experiencing a sales spike. But yep. uh, yeah, so people are excited for Metroid Dread, let's just say. Go figure. Yeah, go figure, right? And speaking of Wii U, just really quickly, we wanted to highlight that the Wii U is getting a new game next month. <laughs> <laughs> still. Which is hilarious. Still, <laughs> Megan, it's 2021. It's 2021. 
July 2nd, Sturmfront the Mutant War Ubel Edition is coming out. <laughs> I guess it's like a top-down twin-stick shooter. It's also coming out for Switch, but yeah, yeah. it's got a Wii U version. I, I love that so much. I just love seeing stuff like that. I really do. It blows my mind when you see releases for these consoles that haven't been current gen in half a decade. There's just something <laughs> about that. Like the way that Just Dance 2020 released on the Nintendo Wii. I just love when we see stuff like that. Obviously, it's becoming much more in vogue, much more fashionable to release games for retro consoles. People are developing like actively developing games for the Nintendo and master system and those old classic consoles, but you don't see current releases on painfully outdated hardware like this. It's just, right. uh, it, it warms my heart in a weird kind of way. Yep. I, I love it, man. I, I love to see it. But a uh, couple of PSAs here just at the end of the news roundup. We've already mentioned uh, that the demos for both Neo The World Ends With You and Monster Hunter Stories 2 are now available. Yep. Eric's given his his impressions of Monster Hunter Stories 2. I know we're both going to be playing Neo The World Ends With You probably like as soon as we're done recording this episode. <laughs> True story. Uh, really excited for that. Uh, another quick PSA. Uh, just as a reminder, the Mr. Sakurai Presents... Kazuya is happening on Monday, the 28th, so definitely stay tuned for that. Yes, that will be one of our biggest stories next week. Oh yeah, we'll be talking all about that next week. We're assuming, just based on the track record, the fact that the new Smash update is coming soon, um, it's probably either going to be shadow dropped or released soon after the presentation. Oh yeah, So more than likely we'll have our full impressions of Kazuya in Smash next week. Yeah. That's, that's probably going to be the case. Um, yeah, and then just finally, uh, Nintendo finally kind of officially revealed the Lego sets that were the worst kept secrets uh, <laughs> for a couple of weeks now uh, with a kind of bizarre trailer of these two kids playing with Lego Mario and Lego Luigi and this dad walking in the room wondering what he put in his coffee that morning. Um <laughs> Because <laughs> he saw his his kids like literally running on the walls, like they just uh, walked out of uh, in the heights or something. Um, <laughs> oh, did you get to see it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Actually, I, I I watched that last week. I really liked it. Nice. Um, yeah, finally got to watch it on HBO Max. So shout out to In the Heights. I loved it. Yes, um, Lin Manuel Miranda, you are a great creative mind, sir. Oh yes, oh yes. But uh, but yeah. So these they finally unveiled these uh, the Bowser's airship, all the new character packs. There's a they're finally making. They got me on this one. All right, because they they're finally doing the uh, Frog Mario Super Power Up Pack. So it's like <laughs> I I have refrained from buying any of the Power Up Packs so far, but that's gonna be one. I'm gonna have to buy that. So I want my Mario to have an adorable little frog costume. But anyway, all that stuff is hitting this next wave on August first if you are into uh, the Lego Super Mario stuff. So, PSA. Well, what are your guys' thoughts on all the goings-on within the Nintendo world? We'd love to hear from you, so reach out to us on Facebook, at All In Podcast, on Twitter, at All In Podcast. And if you haven't already, definitely join us on the All In Discord. We're having a ton of fun over there, and maybe we'll feature one of your comments in an all in segment. But in addition to that, do please make sure to give a like, a follow, and a subscribe to our YouTube page and to All In a Nintendo podcast on whatever service you happen to be listening to us on, whether it be Spotify, Google Play, iTunes, 
or SoundCloud. Thank you guys for hanging out with us each and every Saturday, making us part of your weekly rotation. Namaste. So speaking of Lego, though, we are finally, it is finally time, Eric, to talk about an exciting little indie game that we have been wanting to talk to you guys about for a long time. We mentioned a few weeks ago Mm -hmm. on the show that we had the privilege of being invited to a preview event ahead of E3 for Lego Builder's Journey. And uh, massive thanks again to Lego and Lightbrick Studio for inviting us to that. We produced a preview video for it on our YouTube channel. Definitely go check that out if you haven't. But yes, it is finally time, Eric. It's finally time to break it down brick by brick and cover <laughs> the game properly. Now that it now that it's been released to the public, we can finally tell you all about it. Our indie showcase this week is Lego Builder's Journey. So we're going to break it down brick by brick, huh, Seth? Yeah. <laughs> you know, that, that that just, you know, the pun well done, came sir. to me. I had to take it. Well done, sir. <laughs> I'm not even going to bust out the old button for that one. <laughs> no, I, I you got to you got to seize the opportunity. But yeah, man, I Lego Builder's Journey. I mean, we we really enjoyed the preview that we got yes. uh, again. You know, just just to be right out front about it, full disclaimer, we did receive very, very graciously two free codes for this game uh, well in advance of its release this past week on the 22nd. And um, we were not allowed to talk about it until the game finally came out. So that's why we're finally highlighting it. But I just got to tell you guys, uh, as is always the case when we are given early access to these games, we're going to give you our honest opinion and showcasing a game here in the indie showcase means that we wholeheartedly recommend it and lego builders journey is a special little game i really enjoyed it. it's a very contained experience it was originally yes. an apple arcade game that they have greatly expanded upon and released on the nintendo switch with a ton of new levels including a few what they call free build levels which i feel are super interesting but yeah, yeah uh, as you might expect with something that originated on the Apple Arcade, we're not exactly talking an expansive game here. And I know a lot of people think Lego and they immediately think of the Traveler's Tales games. You think of stuff like Lego Avengers and Pirates of the Caribbean and Harry Potter and the Lego movie games and and all of these incredibly similar experiences. But Lego Builder's Journey is not that. This is very much a new take, a new direction for the Lego IP. It is still officially a Lego game. It is still a licensed Lego game, but it is, if you're coming into this thinking it's going to be another experience like Lego Star Wars, that is not remotely the case. This is something that uh, we talked about in our preview video, but they specifically use the word meditative when talking mm-hmm. about this game, Lightbrick Studios specifically used the word meditative talking about Lego Builder's Journey. This is a much more methodical, much more contemplative, much more relaxing at your own pace kind of experience. Very, very much so. One one corollary that I draw immediately with Lego Builder's Journey is the Go games. Hitman Go, Tomb Raider Go, Um it, it and what I mean by that is, and what's what's interesting is Karsten Lund, the creative director over at Lightbrick Studios, did previously work on these games, and like those games, it's like the puzzle game distillation of what the core of those concepts are. So, Lego Builder's Journey is a puzzle game, an isometric puzzle game that is just 
the absolute core of what Lego bricks are. You know, like it, it, it is just about building. It's got a story to it somewhat. It's, you know, told completely non-verbally, but there is a bit of a story in a, in a journey that you go on. Uh, but at its heart, it is about the act of building with Lego bricks, the act of play. And I, I think that's really effective. And the Lego brick itself, the entire concept, the entire idea of a Lego brick is really at the center of this game. Every piece of every environment was made out of Legos. And even more so than that, there are characters in this game, but there's not a single minifigure in the game. And that was something that we spoke directly to Lightbrick about and something they specifically addressed is they felt that the minifigs, they felt that the idea and the concept of the minifigures wouldn't go well with this. They thought that they would take too much attention away from the other figures and the other aspects of the environment and the story. They thought that the minifigures were essentially a little bit too noisy, I guess. Yeah, there are a couple characters, most notably a father and son, that the entire game essentially revolves around, but they are not minifigures. They're made out of little individual Lego bricks. And even despite that, they have these little movements and these little animations that still just give them so, so much personality. And despite the fact there is not a line of dialogue within this entire experience, despite the fact that outside of the very first screen, where if you don't do anything for the few seconds, it'll, you know, give you a couple little tutorial hints. Outside of that, there's not even any text throughout right. the entire game as well. This is completely nonverbal, completely non-textual uh, experience. And despite that, you still have an incredibly strong feeling about what's going on. You know exactly what's happening. You know exactly what's going on between this father and son character. You know exactly what's going on in the individual maps. And you have a a really good grasp of the narrative that is being told. So it's, it's basically done like a silent movie. But the fact that they're able to do everything through just little itty bitty pantomime animations, but still completely and effortlessly convey everything that they're trying to go for. Uh, that's that takes some talent. I'll give them that. Yeah, it does. It's not easy to do. I mean, this game, when it was being prototyped, was referred to as Lego Art House. And that is kind of what it is. It's like a little silent art house movie about, you know, and, and we can we could kind of go, I don't want to like completely spoil everything that happens in the game because, yeah. you know, there's. There is a, a bit of a narrative to it, but the the messaging that it has about the nature of play and the sort of like getting wrapped up in our day-to-day working lives and not making enough time for play and stuff, that that's all really effective to me. And um, but but I, I wanna to circle back to uh the the visual fidelity of the game. Yeah. Like the the actual Lego brick, as you said, is at the core of this experience. The world, like you said, is completely built of these Lego bricks. And I just want to say this game, even on the Switch, like when we previewed the game, we were seeing it being run on the PC with like full ray tracing and all this stuff. But even on the Switch, I think this game is breathtakingly beautiful. I'll say the PC footage that we saw honestly made a lot of the environments we saw look near photoreal. It yeah. looked like we were watching, you know, actual Lego creations 
animating and you know living their lives essentially i'm I'm, on the switch obviously it's not going to be that high of fidelity but still there is i I, yeah ultimately i'm not going to try to get clever with it i still think the game looks really good you can it, it looks a little rough around the edges compared to the pc version but still for the nintendo switch yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I have no complaints about the visuals whatsoever. Yeah, it's still just, just really, just a pretty game. Like it's just a pretty game to look at. What they've done with the, the lighting, and there are some moody moments. Like what, what one thing that's really impressive is the way that the game plays with the darker moments of the game. It, it sets tone really, really well. Like it sets mood and tone really well through its visuals, and also with its music and its soundtrack, which. I got to say, like, one of the things that really stood out to me when we previewed the game was that they mentioned that the game's score was done entirely on piano. Yeah. And that, to me, is what really sends this over the edge. Because I've heard a lot of scores done on piano entirely. I Am Setsuna is a good example of this, where they didn't do anything different with it. They, like... They, they, it was just straight piano, no synthesization, like nothing like that. And it got very grating to me. This game takes that concept and like just does so much with it. They get so much mileage out of this game's soundtrack. It's really impressive. And again, really sets a tone. Really, there, there are calming tracks that put you at, in this meditative state of just like building and going through these puzzles and going through this little adventure. There are, again, there are moments where it's a little bit scary. Like, it's just really good sound design. Just really high standard. Well, a lot of the aesthetic and a lot of the feeling that they're going for in this game, there is very much a surreal undertone to a lot of what's going on. And especially once you get into the game and you see, you know, kind of where the game progresses, you'll understand that a little bit more. But uh, again, there is this surreal quality to a lot of the proceedings. Uh, another thing that helps that along is the fact that all, all the environments are isometric. We've already previously compared them to something like, you know, Captain Toad Treasure Tracker yeah. with its diorama-esque environments. But one of the things that really helps the surreal quality of the game is, unlike Captain Toad, where you have, you know, maybe these far backdrops with clouds or maybe some Mario wallpaper off in the far distance. There's this fog that surrounds the entire game around every diorama, around most of the environments. There exists this this fog around every set that helps breathe in the surreal environment and the soundtrack that Seth's talking about. That also really helps with it. There's just something beautiful, but slightly off-putting about the piano soundtrack, about the piano score in a lot of the stages. It's still good but there is still just something that feels just one degree off if that makes any sense it, it makes it feel otherworldly yeah it, it and this is something that you told me um when you first started playing the game is that it reminded you of planet alpha it does remind is, me of planet alpha yeah yeah which is a game that we covered way back when on the show or that you covered specifically way back when on the show and i since played it and i and i really enjoyed it too but yeah, it's got this, it, that game has this otherworldly kind of vibe. And, and yeah, maybe it's because there's no spoken dialogue. Maybe it's because you're playing as these, you know, these faceless characters in this world that feels otherwise completely removed. It just feels like these little, 
these little diorama worlds, nothing feels necessarily interconnected in that way. You're going from, you know, level and puzzle, you know, from one to the next. There is a connective narrative, but the world that it's taking place on is literally just diorama after diorama after diorama. So yeah, we're not saying that any of this is a bad thing, but it does lend a very kind of surreal, otherworldly quality to it. That means that the game can be at once relaxing and also a little bit like strange, stranger in a strange land kind of vibes. Oh, yeah. And a lot of what you just said is what reminded me of Planet Alpha when I was playing through Lego Builder's Journey. Mm -hmm. But there was another thing. Obviously, yes, you've got the faceless characters, the otherworldly feel, the completely pantomimed, no dialogue whatsoever narrative that's going on behind everything. But there's also just a playability to Lego Builder's Journey, the flow of Planet Alpha, the fact that it was just one continuous, uninterrupted sequence for all intents and purposes with, you know, a couple, with the exception of just a couple secret levels, Planet Alpha takes place on what's effectively a single screen. Yeah. And that really helped the flow of the game. And it's very similar to Lego Builder's Journey. There are dozens and dozens of different environments, but they all flow immediately into the next one. There's almost no loading times whatsoever. And the pace of the game is really, really impressive. There's not necessarily any replayability to the game. There's not a ton of collectibles to go back for. There's not a ton of secret endings that you can go in and find. Yeah, you know, once it's not you, that kind of game. Yeah, once you play through the game once, practically speaking, there's not a lot of reason to go back and play it. But I still have, just because of how playable the game is, because of the pace of the game, it's so easy just to jump back in, especially when it comes to those free play build levels that we were talking right. about. It's just so easy to jump back into this game even after you've played it. I've done it several times since beating the game. I haven't done... You know, I haven't gone back and done full playthroughs multiple times, but I have very, I've had no problem jumping back in to that game several times, just, you know, just because of how good it feels to to go through it. Yeah, it, that, that's actually a really interesting thing. Like, yeah, you can find yourself getting sucked right back into that really, really easily. It all flows so extremely well. And there's also something good about the feeling of just playing with Legos that I think this game captures, it gives you this space to be creative and to kind of like play with your imagination. I mean, yes, you do have goals. Like the game does present puzzles and goals and you have to get in many cases from one area to the next, but there are several moments in the game, several screens and dioramas and puzzle boxes where it's like, okay, like I know that I am tackling this puzzle completely differently than the way Eric's tackling it. You know, like, there's, there's these moments where you have to create like a track and it's like you get from one place to the other place, but the way you get there can be totally different from the other person. So I think that lends itself really well to replayability also. And yeah, like the, the free building kind of levels where I'm not, again, I don't want to spoil too much because there, there are some gameplay um, gimmicks that this game does little hooks to the gameplay that keep it interesting where like there's one hook in particular that involves some of the uh, the new levels that they've worked in with this release that I found very interesting and very addictive to play with. 
like you said, even after beating the game, I've gone back to those levels just to mess around with that particular mechanic. Mm-hmm. Like the game just feels good. I agree. And that was something that they talked to. Another thing that they specifically addressed was the fact that they will be, that they would be adding in different little gameplay hooks and different mechanics for each of the different chapters of the game. And you do see that the game's not overly long, but there are quite a few different little quirks that you get to play with that I think also really help with the game's pacing. But, you know, I almost to the point where I'd like to see them even more expanded on. I would, even though this is clearly the definitive version of Lego Builder's Journey, I couldn't help it. It's like, oh man, I wish there was just a few more maps. I wish there was just a few more areas for me to really play with this idea. Yes, definitely. And that's something that's worth noting too, because we've already mentioned that the game had an initial Apple Arcade release. And this was kind of the, this now console version that's on Switch, the one that's available for you to go buy and play is the definitive version. It does have that additional content worked into it, but it's not like a separated experience. They work it seamlessly into the story, which I thought was really effective. There's there's a really interesting way that they kind of play with that. And you almost can't even tell. I actually had to like look up where that stuff was because I didn't even notice. Like there was no like hard cut, like, okay, we're starting the new content now. You know, they worked it right in. Oh yeah. And I thought that was really cool and smart. Um, but yeah, no, I, I agree. I would like to see them continue making games of this type. Like I would totally be all in for more builders journey like content. It's, it's got just, like you said, it's just very playable. Like it's got a very nice feel to it and it's totally, the, the pacing is really good. You, you just fall right into it. It feels great. Yeah. I would absolutely buy a Lego set with the three main characters here in oh, this yeah. game because you just, you do kind of fall for them, not just the mechanics, not just the world, but the characters themselves. And again, just their little animations carry so much personality with them. I could honestly see them becoming kind of cult classic figures within the Lego world. I really could. I could see that too. Yeah. Another thing I want to shout out to my wife and I played this, the game doesn't have traditional co-op play. Um, there, you can't play two players at the same time, but my wife and I played this together. Um, just kind of passing the controller back and forth. And it's the perfect game to do that because it's like puzzle after puzzle. So she would handle a few and then pass the controller to me, or we would kind of suss out the puzzles verbally to each other. So it's a really good game to play with a friend or a significant other or something like that. And and like, because of the bite-sized nature of it, the game's not going to take you any more than three or four hours. So quite literally, like it was a situation where my wife and I, we, we had dinner together and then we just kind of booted that up and spent the evening and played through Lego builders journey together. And it was just so pleasant. Like it's, (laughs) it's, it doesn't overstay its welcome. It is like exactly how long that I think it should have been. And just left me, gave me that taste of wanting more, just wanting to see it expanded upon. And we certainly love a game. And we, again, wholeheartedly recommend it. But to say that the game is perfect would be a little disingenuous. Yeah. Uh, Specifically for the Nintendo Switch. You know, we haven't played it on PC, so we can't vouch for how responsive the game is on PC. But after having played it on the Nintendo Switch, the entire hook of the gameplay, what you'll be doing the vast majority of the time is picking up individual Lego pieces and trying to find out how to build them 
or manipulate them or place them in a way that allows the characters to advance. That's the vast majority of the gameplay. You see what you have in the environment and you see the different Lego bricks and Lego items that you can use in place to try to advance. And we've already mentioned that this takes place in isometric environments. So essentially what the game has done is it's created kind of a rudimentary cursor. There's not really a cursor in the game, but there's effectively an invisible cursor. Right. And the fact that you're looking at this from a downward angle on an isometric map means that when you're trying to manipulate things, especially on a two-dimensional D-pad or especially on a D-pad or an analog stick, then it can feel a little weird sometimes trying to get the Lego brick to go where you want it. Because of the depth and the height and the width of the different maps, trying to manipulate something in a 3D environment using just an analog stick or a D-pad can can occasionally be a little unwieldy, to be fair. Yeah, that that's probably my only real complaint if I have one with the game is that yeah, it, it can sometimes be you know, you pick up the brick, you know, press you know, press A to pick up the brick, try to move it where you want to move it, hold A to place it, you can drop it with B, and you know, you can rotate the the bricks if you need to and stuff like this, and that's all fine. But yeah, trying to like spatially determine where you are can sometimes be tricky. Uh, one thing that the game does do that I that I appreciate is it gives you very subtle vibrations with the HD rumble where like basically when you have uh, c- kind of connected or snapped to a placeable point, which is a nice indicator of like, okay, I'm, I'm here. I'm, I'm where I need to be to, to lay this brick. That is nice. And that does help. But, but yes, you will find yourself kind of struggling sometimes, especially again, not to spoil anything, but there are going to be moments in the game where things are timing based and you have to do things quickly or you have to do things in a certain amount of time and sometimes manipulating the bricks can be tricky and isn't really held up to the scrutiny of a timer, (laughs) you know? Yeah. I mean, but that's not to say that there's going to be any big repercussions or big consequences or anything like that. Again, we've mentioned that this is a much more laid back style experience. So if anything, you're just going to, the worst you're going to come across is some momentary frustration So it's never going to be a situation where, oh, the controls messed me over and now I've got to replay the next 30 or I've got to replay the last 30 minutes of the game. Exactly. You're you're never going to run into anything like that. But I mean, yes, controls are somewhat important in video games. So we did have to, you know, mention that. But again, at the end of the day, it's, 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 it's a drop in the pond, I feel. Right. It's hard to imagine a better solution than the one that they've come up with here. It's just kind of the nature of the game. Uh, I will say you can control the game with touch controls as well. Yeah. As if you were playing on Apple Arcade, the Switch does have a touch screen. So if you want to control that the game that way, you can do that as well. So that is an option for you if you would like to to tackle it that way. I found the touch I found the touchscreen controls to be a little bit more unwieldy, honestly, than me too. The normal method. If you want to play it handheld, you certainly can, but I would recommend playing it 
on i would recommend playing it in docked mode personally if you have the option and i will say between the two the analog stick does allow you to freely move the lego bricks and the lego items around but i did find and this was something i actually didn't even notice until after i'd already beaten the game but the d-pad on the game especially when you're trying to go with you know minute like one section like one space over type of movement right the d-pad is really good for that so combining use of the analog stick and the d-pad is going to be your best bet and overall uh once you learn how to use both and what the what both control implements are best for then you'll have a much easier time but Mm -hmm. you know also i mean yeah there's a little bit of a learning curve okay yeah, but I mean, again, minor complaint. Uh, overall, I, I really, really like this game. And I will say, too, that this is the kind of game where, while there's not a like demo available or anything like that, this is the kind of game where if you watch a trailer or if you go and, again, watch our preview video on our YouTube channel, links in the episode description, uh, if you go and check that video out, I think you'll get a grasp for what the game is really, really quickly. The game has to convey itself visually very, very easily, and it has to be very readable. So in other words, you can take one look at this game and kind of determine if you're interested in it. If this is the kind of experience you're looking for, I think you can learn that really, really quickly. So, um, but yeah, for us, I I think it definitely was was a special little experience that um, I certainly can see myself going back and and replaying like a good short book or something like that. Every so often you want that meditative Lego experience. I I can totally see myself going back and replaying the game and just falling right back into that world. And I would be very interested in more. Yeah. And it is kind of serendipitous that the game did come out this past week because it came out a couple days too late for it, but considering that we just had Father's Day, this would actually be a yes. fantastic game to play uh, with a father and a son together. Yes. Just like you and your wife, Seth, just like you and Anastasia played it together. This would be a great game for a father and a child to play together. But yes, thank you one more time to Lego and Lightbrick for allowing us this experience, for inviting us to the preview event and for you know, setting us up to, to be able to play Lego Builder's Journey. I'm really excited, especially after playing Lego Builder's Journey, to see what the Lego IP has in store in the future for the video game world. Not that I don't love the Traveler's Tales games, but this was certainly a really interesting and unique take on the iconic little bricks. And I'm very interested to see what other ideas Lego has up its sleeve in the future. But... If you guys have tried out Lego Builder's Journey, or if you plan on trying out Lego Builder's Journey, it's currently $20 on the Nintendo eShop. Let us know what you think of the game. Reach out to us on Facebook and Twitter and tell us all of your thoughts on the new building sim from Lego. And as we mentioned already, talking about Lego Builder's Journey, it's a great game to play for like a father and son. Like I said, I played it with my wife. It's a great game to play. Together And togetherness is something that has kind of been at the forefront of our mind this month as we celebrate Pride Month and kind of looking towards Nintendo games and some of the games that we can play to celebrate Pride Month and celebrate all of our allies in the LGBT community. We thought it would be a great chance to highlight some of those games this week in our top five. Yeah, as we near the end of Pride Month and it's starting to kind of move out of a lot of people's minds, well, a lot of people not directly affected by the issues faced by the LGBTQ 
community. We just wanted to bring it back to the forefront one more time and talk about our favorite Nintendo games that really encompass, that really bring to light the LGBTQ experience. And listen, I get it. We are two straight males talking about the LGBTQ experience. I get it. Neither Seth or I has uh, ever claimed to be anything but straight white males, but we do claim to be allies. 100%. If you ever need anything, ask one of us. We will help you however we can. We try to support each of our fellow humans, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of gender, regardless of sexuality. So with that in mind, these are games that we feel that you should play if you want to have a better understanding of the community and the experience of these people. And they're they're all Nintendo Switch games, A, because it'll give you the ability to immediately seek these out if you're able to. And B, they're all Nintendo Switch games because, as I think most of us are, are pretty well aware, the acceptance of this community hasn't really been a priority for the world at large up until very, very recently. It was soberingly difficult to actually put together an actual top five list for this. And you will notice that there is a fairly distinct lack of AAA uh, representation on this list because despite the fact that we are seeing more and more representation from this group, when it comes to AAA games, a lot of those AAA games are not making it to Nintendo consoles right now. But we will talk about that here in a couple minutes. Yeah, I mean, this was legitimately one of the hardest, if not the hardest list that we've ever had to put together. And we wanted to make sure we shouted things out because, again, we we love everybody here at All In. And we, um, we, we just thought it was so important to highlight some of these experiences and some of these games that really kind of in some way can give us even even people like you and I who are cis straight white males like it gives us kind of a window into that community and the people that we love and we just want to celebrate that here and um and yeah so i mean while while it's like inherently imperfect we're all imperfect right we all need to strive to be to be better and and it it kind of sucks that all of the games that are here on our top five, another thing you'll notice is that not only is there only one AAA game, but all of these games came out within the past decade. Yeah. And so, but, but I mean, I think it does kind of highlight that, you know, we, we want to highlight these games that are, that are accepting of this community. And it was just really important to us. And, and to start us off here um, with number five, an experience that I wanted to highlight specifically because this is an example of a game that showcases a company like Nintendo trying to be better. Our number five is Fire Emblem Three Houses. This one, so when Fire Emblem Awakening came out, it had a stark lack of same-sex marriage options, which was something that Nintendo caught a lot of flack for, and, and you know, deservedly so. And when it came to Fire Emblem Fates, they kind of slowly incorporated same-sex options, but it wasn't quite where it needed to be. Flash forward now to the latest release in the series, Three Houses, and we have got many more uh, romance options for same-sex marriage and stuff like this in Fire Emblem Three Houses, and it is a welcome addition. And while it's still not perfect, it's still not exactly where it needs to be, I, I do think it's worth just sort of highlighting when a company does their best to do something to kind of like 
speak to that experience to do better. And that is what Nintendo did with Fire Emblem Three Houses. This is a triple A game. This is a triple A Nintendo Switch title that sold millions of copies and not for nothing. They they're trying, you know, and I just, I want to highlight that. And it's something that you always say at the end of Gamer Glossary, right? Let's never stop trying to be better. Let's never stop so. trying to be better. Yeah. Admittedly, I'm not huge in the Fire Emblem series, which is why Seth has done most of the talking in this entry, <laughs> but there are a lot of games that offer romance options. And since a lot of the other major video game publishers and developers like Sony and Microsoft have also begun to be much more inclusive in this regard when it comes to games that have mm-hmm. romance options, it is very nice to see Nintendo taking steps forward. I'm not saying that, you know, Nintendo is very I'm not saying that Nintendo is very outwardly waving pride flags everywhere it goes, but they sure. they have taken very noticeable steps to be better. Yep, absolutely. And I, again, I, I think that that's worth shouting out when when a company does try to be better. And I mean, again, we, we've still got a long way to go, but, you, you know, it's it's nice to mark the distance. And yeah, I mean, we also, I mean, you know, wanted to have some AAA representation on our list, too. <laughs> so it's nice to see with a AAA company, you know, starting to include more same-sex marriages. And hopefully when we get to the next Fire Emblem game, which hopefully we'll be hearing about soon, uh, hopefully we go even further, you know, hopefully that we, hopefully they include even more people, uh, in fire emblem. I just, I hope to see the series grow. I hope to see Nintendo grow. Yeah. Let's never stop trying to be better. And when it comes to triple a Nintendo representation, maybe we can get uh, Birdo at the forefront a little bit more here in the future. Birdo from the That's super Mario universe. Yeah. Yeah. Birdo's a good shout out. But coming into our number four on our top five games to play for Pride Month, it was our runner-up game of the year for 2020. It is a fantastic, Mm -hmm. fantastic roguelike from the immaculate Supergiant Studios. Our number four is, of course, Hades. And Mm -hmm. if you have gotten deep into Hades, you probably already know most of the stuff we're going to be talking about. But uh, yeah, it may may seem a little spoilery, but it turns out there are actually a couple romance options in that game as well. It's not necessarily a mechanic as it is in many other games, but as anybody who's played Hades knows, the story and the narrative to Hades is an integral part to that game. It's not just some vanilla roguelike that's just there to you know, get the serotonin going. There's a very, very deep, intricately woven narrative going on with a lot of characters and play. And a few of those characters are very clearly members of the LGBTQ community, including our boy Zagreus. Yes, the protagonist of the game. And as Zagreus continues to develop relationships with the various characters in Hades, he can also deepen those relationships to the point of romance with several characters of multiple genders. And it's honestly just the cutest thing. It really is. <laughs> I, I totally, I'm, I'm actually going to use the word ship like a total <laughs> <laughs> Tumblr person. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was absolutely shipping Zagreus and one character early on in the game only to find out that, that's not really going to be an option for them, unfortunately. But it turns out that character is also a member of the LGBTQ community. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
uh, another male character in the game who turns out to have his own long lost love. And that's also just so adorbs. I mean, it's just, uh, it's, all the relationships in the game just melt my heart. They really do. They're just so adorable in their own dysfunctional Grecian gods kind of way. <laughs> well, and it's also, I mean, something that Hades does so well is characterize these people as real people. So it's nice to see a queer relationship in a game like this that is well-defined. Like, the, the, these characters actually have dimension to them. It's not just simply saying like, oh yeah, that person, yeah, he's gay or whatever. Like it, it actually gives you dimension and depth and texture to these characters in these relationships. And yeah, to have the protagonist of the most prolific independent action roguelike game of the past few years be bisexual is a big deal. Definitely. And I feel like we've already said too much. We definitely don't want to spoil more of Hades than we absolutely have to. It's an amazing game. You should definitely go buy it and play it for yourself. There was a reason that it showed up on so many people's game of the year lists and a reason why it showed up on our top five games of the year for 2020. And especially if you are a member of the LGBTQ community and you haven't played Hades yet, I really recommend getting on that. It is a fantastic representation for the community, in our opinion. Love it. Love that game. Uh, moving into our number three, though, one thing that I thought was really important to highlight with this list is the the game that gives you kind of a, a lot of freedom when it comes to your relationships. Um, and I don't think any game does that quite as well as Stardew Valley, which is our number three. Stardew Valley has like a lot of games like this type like harvest moon and such has the the concepts of like bachelors and bachelorettes people that you can develop relationships with and end up marrying you can choose not to even engage with any of them if you don't want to but if you do pursue a romantic relationship it is actually completely fluid you regardless of these characters genders you can pursue relationships with any of them marry any of them even have children with any of them. You can birth or adopt children in this game, regardless of what your relationship is with the characters. So I just, I just really loved that. I mean, what a cool way. It sounds so simple and it is so simple, just a really simple, elegant, giving the player agency over what they want to do in their relationships, the way they want to live their own lives. And I just think that that is probably the, the most straightforward and elegant way of representation in a video game. Yeah, we definitely wanted to highlight a game like this where romance is such a focus of the gameplay. Obviously, yes, it's Stardew Valley. So farming is going to be your primary goal, building up mm -hmm. your farm and, and doing all this stuff. But romance is a big, big part of the game. And to have that much freedom is so nice to see, especially on a Nintendo console. When we were talking about games that had romance as a primary mechanic earlier, you know, what a few of the first things that come to mind is stuff like The Sims and their same-sex relationships. I don't, I don't even know which of The Sims games, which of the Nintendo Sims games actually even allow same-sex relationships. I'm not completely convinced that any of them do. Maybe Herbs... Yeah maybe herbs sims in the city back on the nintendo ds but i'm not a hundred percent confident that any of the nintendo sims games offer same-sex marriage options unfortunately but right you know on the xbox one and on pc a lot of those games do uh the mass effect trilogy 
does. That's been a big proponent for the LGBTQ community and relationship freedom. Uh, also, you know, Ellie from The Last of Us and also and also in Dragon Age, you can have a lot of that. So if you have these other consoles, we also want to, you know, we're a Nintendo podcast, but if you have these other consoles and you have these games, you know, a couple other non-Nintendo options to play for Pride Month as well. Totally. But, but yeah, for the Nintendo fan base, there's not too much more outside of this and something like Fire Emblem, unfortunately. There's not a ton of games on the Nintendo Switch that really offer this kind of relationship freedom and offer relationships and relationship building as a primary game mechanic. So if that's something you're into and you haven't already checked out Stardew Valley, we really think you should. The game certainly has a very humble looking aesthetic, but it is an incredibly deep, incredibly compelling oh, yeah. game. Once you get into it, that is definitely a game you can sink actually hundreds of hours into. So don't be put off by its Super Nintendo aesthetic. This is a very, very deep, rewarding gameplay experience. And the relationship freedom offered in Stardew Valley is a big part of that. Yes. Yes, you really are given the freedom to just live your life however you want. And that is something we totally had to highlight. And actually coming into our number two, ironically enough, this is actually a game we have been waiting to talk about here on the show since literally before our first episode. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's true. <laughs> and we definitely plan on going even deeper into this game on a later date. However, we absolutely wanted to showcase this game for Pride Month. Again, possible spoilers if you haven't played it, but our number two game you really should play for Pride Month is Gone Home. Gone Home, again, I'm, I'm going to try to dance around spoilers, but um, I, one of my favorite things to say when talking about Gone Home, which is one of my favorite games ever, and it's it's because Gone Home really did change my life. Like Gone Home really did change my perspective and, and my outlook. And it, it was kind of the first, and this is just, again, an example of ignorant, you know, cis, straight, white male, but it was it was the game that really, for me, shined a light on the experience of people who have to grow up this way and people who have like things going on in their families and all, and like a lot of these struggles that LGBTQIA plus people go through. Um, it's, it's so intense and like, it's so different from the way that I grew up. And so it was really important to me to play something like gone home and again, dancing around spoilers, but it does deal with a, a lesbian growing up and, it just really blow blow my mind is is the wrong word, but it totally I felt like I was seeing for the first time. It like lifted a certain veil over my eyes, and again, it's it's just on the part of ignorance. But like, I think it's such an important game for everybody to play. Everybody should experience Gone Home in that way because I do think it's a super illuminating game. And honestly, if you are out there and you are a member of this community, but have not made that public knowledge. If you have any struggles mm -hmm. with your acceptance of a, as a member of this community, that's another good reason we think you should play Gone Home. Again, trying to dance around spoilers, but if you're struggling for self-acceptance in this world, I think that Gone Home has a really good message for you to hear. Yes, yes, totally. I think 
I, I just think Gone Home is is one of those pieces of fiction that is powerful to anybody who consumes it. And the fact that it deals with a topic like this, it deals with sexuality and and like again, like trying to find your way in the world and navigate your family and yeah, self-acceptance and stuff like this. Um, to say nothing of all the other little stories in Gone Home, it's just a wonderful game. And, and again, we're, we're definitely going to cover that game. I promise you we are going to cover that game. That that game is like one of my white whales for this show. We will cover <laughs> that game. Uh, we, we've been trying to cover that game since like before the show started. So yeah, I mean, that that's going to happen. Uh, and we will get more in depth when we talk about it. But yes, I, I think Gone Home is just totally... A, a wonderful piece of fiction for anybody who consumes it. So yeah, I, I had to shout that game out, but before we get into our number one, we do have some honorable mentions that we think are worth shouting out as well. Yes. It was kind of hard to find games that we really thought positively reflected this community. That's a reason that we don't really have street fighter on here because of poison uh, right. For anybody familiar with the character Poison, like that's an entire thing. We don't feel like that positively reflects the LGBTQ community. Same reason we didn't put Ash on here from Streets of Rage 3, who was so a horribly stereotypical gay man in Streets of Rage 3. So much so that Ash is only in the Japanese version of Streets of Rage 3. So yeah, that's why Poison and Ash are are nowhere near our top five when it comes to games you should play to feel positive about Pride Month. But there are a couple other games that we do feel are absolutely worth mentioning in this regard. It is a licensed game, but it's definitely worth bringing up Steven Universe. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Steven Universe is such a... That's my favorite animated series of all time, first of all. Um, it's a wonderful show. And the games are really good, too. They're, they're really good, kind of like Paper Mario, Mario and Luigi-style games. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, Steven Universe is just a haven for inclusivity and has so many powerful LGBT like themes. I, I just, yeah, Steven universe is a wonderful treasure of a intellectual property. And, um, and yeah, the games are good. They, there's a few games that are on switch now. Definitely worth playing. Yeah. We didn't want to feature poison here from the street fighter slash final fight universe. However, we will bring up another beat em up. Uh, we do want to talk about Scott Pilgrim, another licensed game ever so briefly, because like half the playable characters in the Scott Pilgrim game are gay or bi. You have Wallace Wells, mm -hmm. you have Knives Child, you have, of course, Ramona Flowers. So that's half of the playable characters right there who are members of the LGBTQ community. And the game's just phenomenal in its own right. It's a game you yeah. should play anyway, but... You know, maybe if you play it within the next few days here at the end of Pride Month, maybe that can be at the forefront of your reasoning. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll shout out here just um, really quickly Sayonara Wild Hearts, which is a game that we have done an indie showcase about in the past and we both yep. loved. And I, I shouted this out in the indie showcase, but that game, I mean, that game's entire visual aesthetic revolves around the bisexual color palette for one thing. Um, but one of the things I love about that game is that it allows so many different people and so many different experiences to pass through its lens and take different things out from it. It's a game about like heartbreak and relationships and stuff like this. But I mean, I got into a conversation with somebody on Twitter recently who was like, Oh, the game's clearly about, you know, being trans and stuff like that. I'm like, well, that's, what's so beautiful about this game is it's ambiguous. It totally allows people of any, you know, 
of any sexuality to take something out of it. So yeah, I think you're right. It is about being trans. It is about being bi. It is about being whatever. Like Sinai or Wild Hearts is just a great game about relationships. And I think really uh, the intentional ambiguity of it uh, really makes it special. And speaking of ambiguity, you might not really think about it on the surface, but this is just another reason for us to bring up Wander Song for a second. Yep. I, uh, I actually, that was our very first interview on the show. Shout out yep. to Greg Lobanov. Greg Lobanov. Um, and that, that was one of the things that I asked him when we interviewed him because the specifically and intentionally, the bard, the player character in the game is not gendered. And Greg specifically made the decision to even like the voice, the singing voice of the bard doesn't sound overtly masculine or feminine because it allows the player to imprint basically anybody they want onto the bard. If you just look up what the bard looks like in Wander Song, it is the most nondescript character design of all time. You know, like it's just this bald person. It could be whatever, you know, like the, the, the gender that they go by. They, I actually looked up a Tumblr post where Greg responded to somebody asking about the bard's gender and his response was, it's not a direct quote, but he said something to the effect of, they go by they, but any pronoun works for them. Love Wandersong. You should definitely, definitely play Wandersong if you haven't already. And when they come to the Nintendo Switch, they didn't make our top five proper simply by virtue of not being on the Nintendo Switch yet, but we are still so excited specifically for this reason, we cannot wait to have the Life is Strange franchise on the Nintendo Switch here very soon. Yes, those games are great. Plenty of LGBT relationships in those games. And um, and yeah, bring them on. I can't wait. I can't wait to play them, especially the the characters of Chloe and Rachel Amber being lesbian. Um, yeah, the, those are those games are going to be like can't miss titles on the Switch when they come out soon. Uh, but if you're looking for something a little bit more murdery (laughs) where we have talked about a lot of really heartfelt really emotional type games but if you're looking for something a little bit more murdery but still lgbtq positive uh, we we definitely check out borderlands yeah the borderlands legendary collection borderlands 1 borderlands 2 borderlands the pre-sequel and actually now borderlands tales from the borderlands are all Mm -hmm. on the nintendo switch and they do feature some very famously over the top LGBTQ characters. I am in love with Tiny Tina. I think she's the greatest. Shout out to Ashley Birch. Oh, yeah. Uh, I would love to see Wonderlands come to the Nintendo Switch. That might be a little bit, uh, that might be a bridge too far, but I would still love to see that. But yes, there are quite a few references and mentions of LGBTQ characters in the Borderlands franchise. And it's a very far cry from a lot of the games that we've talked about. So if none of those, for whatever reason, float your boat, maybe check out Borderlands. Also among some of the best games to come out in the past decade, the original Borderlands was probably my favorite game on the 360. Great games, great games. And yeah, especially as we got to like two and pre-sequel and certainly three, um, they were very, very front-facing about the uh, the representation in those games. Three, I wish three would come to the Switch. I mean, three straight up has a gay marriage in it. So, I mean, like, it's 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 awesome to see, yeah, characters like Tiny Tina. Um, one of the playable characters in Borderlands 3 is, is non-gendered. Um, there is, in pre-sequel, a lesbian couple, overtly. Um, so, I mean, yeah, there's, there's tons of stuff. And, I mean, they're great games anyway, but tons... Tons of love in those games. I love it. 
And there was one more honorable mention that we just wanted to shout out real quick. We know this has been a pretty big honorable mentions list, but specifically we wanted to shout out as many games for Pride Month as we could. We don't necessarily do top tens, but we did want to just shout out as many games as possible to give a positive image here at the end of Pride Month. And the last one we want to shout out in our honorable mentions is, if you've never heard of it, check out Dream Daddy on the Nintendo Switch. (laughs) Yes. Dream Daddy is awesome, actually. My wife and I played through it together, and it's just this really sweet, like charming, funny uh, visual novel dating sim. It's really quite good. I, I liked it a lot. We we did our playthrough as Waluigi and it was, yeah, it was just dream daddy's great. And yeah, the, the fact that it's on the switch. Yeah. I, I love it. I love it. Good <laughs> shout out. But to get into our number one, I think that, you know, I, I talked about how gone home changed my life, but going into our number one, we had to go with a game that changed the life of its creator. And really allowed a lot of people to relate to the main character and relate to the story being told. And I think it was really, really important. And I mean, this game is one of the most important indie games that has come out just of all time anyway. Um, But yeah, I mean, our number one really couldn't have been anything other than Celeste by Maddie Thorson. Celeste was one of the premier indie games of the past five years. It was nominated for Game of the Year at the Game Awards a couple of years ago, the year it released, and it absolutely exploded within the industry. It's an amazingly difficult platforming game where you see this young character, Madeline, trying to ascend Celeste Mountain. And throughout the course of this, she is trying to deal with a ton of of personal issues. You literally wind up fighting Madeline's inner demons in that game. And that was one of the reasons that it resonated so strongly with people is just, you you know, how open the game was being about things like depression and anxiety and self doubt and all of these very real problems that so many people experience that really aren't talked about all that often. It was created by Matt Thorson and his company, Matt Makes Games, only to find out that creating Celeste actually revealed to Matt that he wasn't really Matt. He was really Maddie. Mm-hmm. Or I'm sorry, she was really Maddie. So the just the act of creating Celeste revealed to the developer who they really were. And I think that's just really, really heartwarming and just a really nice story. Yeah. I've actually got the uh, blog post that Maddie Thorson put up and I wanted to read a little excerpt from, from this post and, and I'll link to the full post. It's, it's well worth the read. You'll find that in the episode description, but um, just the, at the start of the post here, it's is, is Madeline canonically trans? Well, yeah, of course she is. This feels painfully obvious to a lot of mostly trans people. And likewise, it feels painfully obvious to me too, in retrospect, It has also become painfully obvious to me that I myself am trans, but these are things that I was not aware of during the development of Celeste, where I was writing Madeline and speaking from her perspective. Creating Celeste with my friends helped me reach the point where I could realize this truth about myself. During Celeste development, I did not know that Madeline or myself were trans. During the Farewell DLC's development, I began to form a hunch. Post-development, I now know that we both are. So I love that. 
I love that. And and like a lot of people kind of pointed that out because there's a cut scene in the farewell DLC where you can see a trans uh, flag on Madeline's desk. So mm-hmm. it kind of, it kind of became like the, you know, the, the canon for a lot of people, but um, for Maddie to figure that out while making the game and to create this piece of art that so many people can see themselves in, like I, I think is just so powerful and so important and, it really makes it's the kind of piece of art that like once more things come to light and once more distance has passed, it almost makes you look at the content of the game even in a different light, you know, like it it makes the content of the game even more powerful in retrospect. It makes the game better in retrospect. So yeah, I just, I mean, it couldn't, our number one could not have been anything but Celeste. And the greatest art will have a profound impact on those who experience it. And the Mm -hmm. fact that it had such a profound impact on the person who created it, I think is just a testament to just how powerful the game is in general. Just by the, just by virtue of being a good game of being a good platformer, you should play Celeste. But when you throw in just kind of everything on top of it, the messaging and, you know, basically just all the feels you play Celeste and you just get all the feels. I've recommended Celeste to so many people, not because of the controls and not because of the platforming, even though you very easily could, but I've always recommended Celeste based on the strength of its narrative and its message. And we are doing that once again here at the end of Pride Month. But were there any games that we missed off of our top five games that you should play for Pride Month, definitely reach out to us and let us know. Reach out to us on Twitter, Facebook, and Discord, and let us know all the games that you are playing to celebrate Pride Month. In you know, addition to all the other celebrations that are going on, especially this past week, a lot of which we've already talked about at length, talking about uh, the Sonic 30th anniversary celebration. Mm-hmm. Again, still trying to come down from that. That was amazing. We've also had, like we mentioned, the Super Monkey Ball 20th anniversary. Congratulations to Super Monkey Ball. Very, very excited for Banana Mania. But unfortunately, kind of lost in the shuffle because of the Sonic 30th anniversary symphony. This past week, a lot of people didn't see was the 25th anniversary of the original release of the Nintendo 64 and Super Mario 64. The silver anniversary of one of the most influential consoles and games ever released and we want to talk about it this week because the, the the entire reason that the Nintendo 64 even exists is a really compelling really interesting story in video game history and it kind of blows our minds that it's not more widely known at least the true facts of the story aren't more widely known So with that being said, let's talk about the N64. Yes, the Nintendo 64 released on June 23rd, 1996 in Japan, just over 25 years ago. 
And um, just about all of you probably know it was, of course, the successor to the Super Nintendo. And just like you said, Eric, I, I think kind of taking us back to that place in the early 90s is actually where the story of the N64 begins. We've talked before on this show about the kind of troubled history, the bad blood, so to speak, between Sony and Nintendo and the wounds that run deep still to this day. And as you alluded to, there's a lot of misrepresentation of the facts of this story. But the the fallout between Sony and Nintendo is is one of the most significant moments really in game history. Yeah, and absolutely. I mean, it's not only the reason that the PlayStation brand exists, it is the reason that we got the Nintendo 64. Yeah, a lot of people wondered why in the world Nintendo was still making cartridges in 1996 when the Nintendo 64 released. Why weren't they going to more CD-based media, which is where essentially the entire entertainment industry was going? Turns out that was actually the plan. However, a lot of things wound up happening. And oddly enough, this is a story that begins predating the Super Nintendo, because Nintendo had plans to create a disk drive even for the Super Nintendo. Even even as the Super Nintendo was launching, there were articles in uh, Japanese magazines and Japanese publications with artist renderings talking about what this potential disk drive could look like. And even back then, it was going to be CD-based because CD technology was already far superior when it came to cartridge chips for holding on to data. Cartridges, I think, had like around eight megabytes at the time when they started developing this, whereas CDs had some somewhere around 700 megabytes of storage space and right. were much easier to produce. So even as the Super Nintendo was being mass manufactured, CDs were already becoming a much more viable option for entertainment companies. The companies just had to kind of figure out how to best utilize them. And Nintendo spent years working with Sony. And it definitely bears mentioning that after Sony saw how much business Nintendo and Sega were doing in this exploding video games market... Sony had actually tried to gain a foothold in the video games market a couple times prior. There was a felt MSX computer that was supposed to be a gaming peripheral. Sony even had an entire publishing brand called ImageSoft that was supposed to be video game centric. Both both of those kind of went nowhere. So Sony entered into a partnership with Nintendo specifically because Sony had a lot of experience with CD-based technology and Nintendo already saw the writing on the wall that the entire industry was moving toward that and they didn't want to be left out in the cold. So for years, they worked with Sony, directly with Sony, to create a disk drive for the Super Nintendo. We've talked about the N64DD, the N64 disk drive that was supposed to lock onto the bottom of the Nintendo 64 that never really went anywhere. That was essentially what this disk drive was supposed to do for the Super Nintendo. It was almost the exact same concept. This Sony made disk drive would come out and it would latch directly on to the bottom of the Super Nintendo. However, there was a big problem with the fact that Sony was making these that begin to create a rift in the partnership. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what, what you guys, you know, gamers of a certain age might kind of remember back in this time, Sony was an electronics manufacturer. They made TVs and sound systems and stuff like this. And we, we have to shout out Ken Kutaragi, who, you know, who years later would end up becoming the head of Sony Computer yeah, Entertainment. The father of the PlayStation. Exactly. The father of PlayStation. And, and I mean, he was the one that positioned Nintendo with Sony's SPC 700 sound APU that was utilized in the Super Nintendo. So that was that was sort of how they got that foothold in with Nintendo. It was all because of Ken Kutaragi, who reportedly did this without his boss's permission. Yeah. And yeah. and uh, eventually ended up getting the backing because he was so enamored with the Famicom that he knew that kind of partnering with Nintendo would be Sony's best chance at giving the new video game market a real shake. And um, and yeah, ended up working with them on the Super Nintendo. So when Ken Kutaragi approaches Nintendo for an even deeper partnership, as you said, it does make sense that Nintendo listened. And the details of this partnership, though, This is where a lot of the misrepresentation comes from, because a lot of people don't consider that the details of this partnership with Sony very much skewed in favor of Sony versus Nintendo. Yeah. And just really quickly, before we move forward, I think it just bears repeating. Yes, the father of PlayStation is the reason that the audio was so good on the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Mm hmm. Crazy percent. But yes, going back to what I was saying a few minutes ago about Sony manufacturing this peripheral, this peripheral wasn't going to need the Nintendo parts necessarily of the Super Nintendo in order to work as intended. And because it was a Sony-made product, Nintendo, who very famously was kind of iron-fisted about collecting licensing fees from video game developers at the time, weren't going to be able to do that with this new disk drive for the Super Nintendo because it was a Sony-made product. Because these games were going to be played on a Sony product, those licensing fees now were going to get shifted to Sony. And Nintendo was going to lose out on millions of dollars. And they were going to be going right into Sony's pocket. And... I think what really tipped it over the edge for Nintendo was the fact that in addition to the disk drive, Sony was starting to create prototypes of an all-in-one system. I'm sure everybody remembers the photos of the so-called Nintendo PlayStation when it surfaced and when it eventually sold at auction. That was the all-in-one system, the prototype that Sony was working on. So... You had something that could play the SNES cartridges and the supposed disc games for the Super Nintendo. And all of those were going to start being played on Sony made items. And again, in addition to the fact that Sony had already very actively been trying to get a foothold in this market share, Nintendo and the famously savage, I kind of respect him for how much of uh, a savage he was, but uh, Mr. Yamauchi, the head of Nintendo, realized that more than likely, Nintendo was financing the creation of their own rival. And honestly, Kudaragi really didn't make it that much of a secret that that was what Sony was working toward. They were using this basically as a way to 
to test the waters to finally get in and effectively test the waters of Sony's membership, essentially, in the video game making landscape. They were going to have their own console out there. They were going to have people making games for it. And that was essentially going to be the foundation for Sony as a viable competitor to other video game manufacturers. And Nintendo realized this. So in secret, Nintendo started developing another plan with another CD-ROM based company. They started working with Philips. Which was, of course, Sony's direct competitor at the time. Um, Now, this is, again, this is something that I think we need to set the record straight on because I think a lot of the people that report on this story or like they they like to kind of like give it a dramatic narrative, make it seem like Nintendo backstabbed Sony with like a surprise betrayal at the zero hour causing Sony to like wander off into the sunset on their own and like a true underdog story, creating the PlayStation brand and blah, blah, blah. That's not entirely what happened. Um, Yes. It was a savage kind of thing to uh, start working with the competition, but I mean, really, if you were going to be working in that space, in the CD-ROM space with anybody at that time, it was going to be either Sony or Philips. And to reiterate, the deal that they had with Sony was essentially like, hey, like we, we Sony, retain this new Super Disk format and we are going to retain control over the licensing revenue and the software licensing and all of this. It was a bad deal for Nintendo. And just like you said, they were creating their own competition and did end up creating their own competition. Um, And so you flash forward here to June of 1991, Sony takes the stage at CES and announces the Super Disk console, which they named the PlayStation, which was Super Nintendo compatible. It could play those cartridges. And then during Shoshinkai or Space World, Nintendo takes the stage and announces that they would be partnering with their direct competitor, Philips. And so a lot of people frame that as like, oh, they had no idea. It was actually in the papers like weeks before it was made, you know, public beforehand. I'm sure that Sony took it as a betrayal. And again, these are wounds that run deep even still to this day. But the reality is, is that Nintendo struck a deal with Philips that was much more favorable to them. Essentially, Philips would design this, you know, SNES CD-ROM add-on for Nintendo, but they would not be retaining licensing revenue or software control. And basically all Nintendo had to give in exchange to Philips was allowing them to utilize Nintendo IP to develop games for their Philips CDI, which are legendarily terrible games like Hotel Mario, the CDI Zelda games, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. And so much so that I genuinely want a collection of all those. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I do too. I would, I would play that. It, that would be a nice piece of history, but yeah, I mean that entire experience, it, it kind of all the nastiness is what kind of made Nintendo dip out of CD-ROMs altogether. And of course that, that SNES CD add-on was never officially released. And it actually, this is probably another story for another time, but a lot of people don't realize that this hugely impacted the development of a game called secret of mana. Mm-hmm. Um, But yeah, I mean, because of all of this stuff, that's why for Nintendo's next console, they said, you know what? Forget it. We're sticking with cartridges. It's like we had deals just absolutely go bottom up with the two biggest names in the CD-ROM world. You know what? We're just going to stick with cartridges. And it bears repeating that 
Uh, again, a lot of this happened in 1991. The Super Nintendo hadn't even been out for a full year when all this went down. So again, this was right. all this CD-ROM stuff was happening super, super early on in the video game landscape, a lot earlier on than I think people realize. And I think it's worth repeating again, Seth already brought up the fact that this supposed betrayal after the fact that after the CES show, after PlayStation announced their console, Nintendo turned around and did what they did. But yes, that was publicized. Sony had to have known about it. So I almost have to think that Sony even publicly talking about the SNES disk drive was probably a power play by Sony to say, hey, look Mm. at the public response to this, Nintendo. You would be idiots to not follow up after that amazing response that we got when we announced this thing. Right. That's a good point. And now Nintendo's the villain in your history, you know. (laughs) (laughs) Somebody's a Hamilton fan. But yeah, yeah, the Sony reportedly even considered not following up because all these prototypes, the multiple prototypes had been in production at that point. Another thing that doesn't get very widely publicized is the fact that that wasn't necessarily the end of the partnership between Sony and Nintendo after their partnership with Philips was announced because Sony and Nintendo's partnership went on long enough to actually create quite a few prototypes of this Nintendo PlayStation. So for whatever reason, they were still trying to make something work for a little while after this whole consumer electronics show debacle. But at some point it did fall apart and all of these prototypes just kind of went out to the wind. And after this, after all this money that Sony had poured into this program and after all these failed attempts to get into the video games industry and this just being the latest failure in that regard, the higher ups at Sony reportedly were strongly considering just nixing the entire idea of a video games initiative from Sony. However, Mr. Kudaragi apparently and I've seen this reported from multiple sources, basically appealed to the absolute pettiness in the bosses (laughs) over at Sony and essentially motivated them by saying they went behind our backs and did deals with Phillips. Are you guys really going to let that stand? Mm -hmm. And this goes, this goes to something that I've talked about before guys, like the, the Japanese culture is an honor based society, you know? So when when you can spin, even though this is a completely reasonable thing that Nintendo did, where it's like, like I'm altering the agreement, I'm going with a better deal with a different partner. If you can spin that to be a dishonorable action in any way, then yes, like it's it's going to create bad blood. And again, you can still feel that to this day. The Sony PlayStation, one of the most successful consoles of all time, the first real CD based video game success, a game that really started to bring 3D into the mainstream of video games. This incredibly pioneering machine, yes, it was made completely out of spite. (laughs) Pretty much, pretty much. But yeah, it also, again, like completely influenced the direction that Nintendo went with the N64. And when you flash forward to Space World 1993, uh, Nintendo president Yamauchi announces Project Reality, which is a new project being developed in partnership with Silicon Graphics. And the idea being that Silicon Graphics was working on like supercomputers. And 
they were like, hey, we can create a console for you, taking our supercomputer technology and paring it down to something that can be less expensive than the competition and produce graphics that are on par with Jurassic Park. That was the whole pitch there was Jurassic Park because Toy Story was not the uh, the buzzword yet. It was Jurassic Park. <laughs> so that was kind of the pitch of Project Reality. And by the next year, when we get to Space World, it was then renamed the Ultra 64, which kind of makes sense, actually, when you think about it, going from like NES, Super Nintendo, like you go from regular, then Super, then Ultra, <laughs> you know? I can see that. Kind of makes sense. But after everything fell through between Sony and Nintendo and then ultimately Philips and Nintendo, the Sony PlayStation released in 1994. It was CD-based and there there was all this 3D stuff going on. And that was what really lit a fire under Project Reality. That was what really lit a fire under the Nintendo 64 was Nintendo all of a sudden realized, okay, we don't have a new CD-based console coming out we need to really get to work on something new. And it looks like it's going to be cartridge-based again. So they went Mm -hmm. to work. And the 32-bit Sony PlayStation came out. And that was basically the fire, the motivator that Nintendo needed. It's like, you know what? From the Nintendo 64, we're going from the 16-bit. We're going straight to to 64. We're surpassing the 32-bit landmark altogether we're passing by the sega cd the sega saturn we're passing by the sony playstation we're going from 16 bit to 64 bit and thus solidified uh one of the greatest rivalries in video game history yeah i mean pretty much and and it's funny because when you talk about the development of the n64 it was kind of tumultuous it was originally slated to be released by christmas of 1995 uh, Nintendo did wind up delaying that to April of 1996. And then, of course, once again to June of 1996. And then when we get to Space World 1995 in that summer, it was then kind of reannounced and newly renamed the Nintendo 64. And just like you said, we're making the jump straight to 64 bit. I mean, this is the promise of delivering basically twice as much power than the competition at a cheaper price point. So this is better than what they've got going on with the Sega Saturn. This is better than what Sony's got going on with the PlayStation. And we're coming out cheaper too. And there was a lot of reasons why the N64's development got delayed, um, presumably because of hardware uh, reasons. They wanted to have enough supply to meet demand. What a concept. Look at what's happening right now. (laughs) Um... But then also the development of software, games like Super Mario 64 and The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time largely delayed the console's release. I mean, Nintendo really banked on Super Mario 64 in particular in terms of like the marketing and the reason for delaying that console's release. They knew that no matter when they dropped the N64, giving the world Super Mario 64 was going to be worth the wait. And then Super Mario 64 came out and became one of the best-selling, most influential, one of the greatest games of all time. So, fair fair point. Yes. There, there's, there's probably, like, a side conversation to be had, and I've seen a lot of people who kind of argue about, like, oh, if Nintendo had just bit the bullet and released earlier, would they have been able to stay more competitive with PlayStation or whatever? But it's like, yeah, that's all well and good. But you guys, when they released with Super Mario 64 in June 96... It changed the world. Like, it absolutely changed the world, Super Mario 64. 
And it turned out, despite the fact that the cartridges weren't able to hold as much as the CDs, as Nintendo always does, they are just able to somehow bring the absolute best out of their hardware. I mean, to this day, it blows my mind what Nintendo is able to do with their own consoles that almost no other developer in video game history is able to do with Nintendo's consoles with, you know, the exception of someone like Rare and a couple other developers. But despite CDs having far more memory capacity, the things that they were able to do with the Nintendo 64 cartridges and the size of a lot of those games still to this day blows my mind. Obviously, one of the first things that people think about when they think of the Nintendo 64 is Ocarina of Time, still regarded as among the, if not the best games ever made. And then, of course, you had Super Mario 64. There was another really good 3D platformer with a bear and a bird on the... I don't... I can't imagine what you're talking about. I don't know, but there's another There's another game out there <laughs> like that. But, I mean, there's so, so many classics on the Nintendo 64, Star Fox 64. And then, of course, you have the beginning of a lot of the Mario sports franchises. You know, obviously, we've been talking a lot about Mario Golf, but a lot of the Mario sports franchises got their start on the Nintendo 64. The Mario Party series got a start on the Nintendo 64. A little series called Super Smash Brothers got its start on the Nintendo 64. And even outside of first-party Nintendo games, despite the fact, and that was a big story about the PlayStation, was all of the third-party support that was shifting from Nintendo over to the PlayStation very famously... Square, Squaresoft, mm-hmm. as it was known at the time, uh, moving Final Fantasy over to the Sony PlayStation with Final Fantasy VII, another little game you might have heard about. But despite all that, there were still quite a few very notable third-party games on the system. Obviously, a lot of those were made by Rare, but there were still a lot of really well-remembered favorites on the console. I do wonder what the Nintendo 64 would have looked like if Nintendo had been able to retain a lot of those big name third-party supporters, I do wonder what some Squaresoft games would have looked like on the Nintendo 64. But uh, I don't know if they were anything like Quest 64 or maybe Ogre Battle 64. <laughs> maybe it's okay that you know they created a little bit more competition within the industry. But yeah. still, yeah, the Nintendo 64 knew exactly what it was and oh. Oh, tell us your favorite in 64 games. Yeah, definitely do so. I what To touch on what you were saying there, though, about the third parties, that is something that is really interesting when you look back at the Nintendo 64 because out of, like, we, we kind of lose sight of this, and I didn't even realize just how few games were ever even made for the Nintendo 64. And, and just, like, in retrospect, like, looking back at it, like, less than 400 games in the entire catalog of the Nintendo 64, which is crazy considering that more than 400 games were probably released just this week on the switch. Uh, (laughs) You're you're not wrong, (laughs) but yeah, losing people like square to PlayStation. I mean, you look at Capcom only made like three games for the N64. Like there's like that Mega Man legends, yeah, uh, Mega Man port. 64. The the Castlevania uh, from Konami was was like a, a bad you know, like bad games from some of these third parties, and Nintendo was the one that really understood it the best. And Nintendo was the one that was making a lot of these classic games. And then, of course, Rare was a big one. 
Um, DMA, who ended up becoming Rockstar North, made games for them like Space Station Sil- uh, oh, Silicon Valley. Space Station Silicon Valley, yes. Yes, yes. So, I mean, we we had a lot of these uh, people like Acclaim as well were big ones on, uh, on, on N64. So it's not that third parties weren't making games for them, but yes, the CD-ROM giving people more data to work with not being stuck on a cartridge format, which was also more expensive. People don't seem to remember that today. N64 games were expensive. Um, And I mean, games back then were expensive, guys. Like people are whining about $70 games today. Like, I'm sorry, games were way more expensive when we were kids. Like, (laughs) that's just a fact. And then, yeah, I mean, like, by the time we get to the 64 DD, which is short lived, that was in 1999, didn't even release here and only 10 games were made for it. And by that time it was like too little too late, but, um, but still the N64, despite everything, despite all of this dramatic development, we've been talking about all of the issues it had third parties kind of leaving them behind. It was still ended up being such an awesome system. And I think my favorite thing about the N64 when I look back at it, especially is how snappy it was like how easy it was to just put a cartridge in. There's no loads. You just throw a cartridge in that thing. It's ready to go. You got four controller ports right there at the beginning. It's the perfect thing to like start up a game of smash or golden eye. It just, it was built around that kind of like focus that kind of like, you know, a lot of uh, first person shooters even, worked well on the Nintendo 64 in general. I mean, you talk about something like a GoldenEye or Perfect Dark. I mean, those games walked so that Halo could run, you know? Oh, yeah. So, I mean, the the fact that we got games like that, these kind of like action-oriented games on the Nintendo 64, I think speaks to the design philosophies behind it. It's just this fast, snappy thing. That's probably a huge reason why the N64 sold best in America. So, yeah, despite everything... I mean, the Nintendo 64 came out strong. It was a weird little experiment, a weird little system that um, that ended up kind of coming out on top, despite everything. A system I still love to this day. I still, like, those cartridges will last forever, man. Like, say what you will, but I think history looks back fondly on the N64. I just really hate Blockbuster and a lot of the rental outlets for branding those cartridges. They ruined oh, millions yeah. of them. Yeah, all those stickers on there. Ugh. The stickers yeah. and like like actually branding, like melting the plastic of the cartridge. Mm-hmm. Ugh. That wasn't good. And I, I want to talk about for a second. I don't know that we've talked at length in, in any real capacity about the N64 controller, <laughs> which is kind of like a, like a weird thing. I don't really know what the thought process were, but in their, in their defense, they were trying to figure out 3D movement, right? Mm-hmm. But... It's worth noting, I mean, the N64 is like the the first kind of like proper, like actually proper analog stick. It was it was weird because it wasn't full like 3D. It was eight. There were eight little divots that allowed the controller, right. that allowed the joystick to snap to up, right, down, left, and then the four diagonal directions. So trying to pull off 360 movement on that controller wasn't exactly the most intuitive, but yes, as a joystick, as a video game joystick, it was certainly a lot more responsive than the D-pad had been in recent years for the Nintendo and Super Nintendo. Ultimately, we would wind up getting much more responsive joysticks from future controllers, especially, you know, the DualShock controller. I think, you know, as much as I love Nintendo, those DualShock controllers are have some pretty nice feeling 
joysticks, but yeah. that alien pad that we had on the Nintendo 64, <laughs> I did, it took me so long to find out how to grip that thing because obviously you want to grip it on the left and the right, right? I mean, that's how you're supposed to hold that controller, right? You're supposed to hold it symmetrically. No. <laughs> Supposed to have one hand on the right where all the buttons are, and then one hand for the vast majority of games inexplicably in the middle of the controller where the joystick is. I'm, I'm honestly having a hard time thinking of too many Nintendo 64 games that actually used the D-pad in any, you know, noticeable function. I know that there were a few games that used it as camera controls, despite the fact they had the C buttons on the right side, which a lot of people wind up going to, especially after Super Mario 64. but yeah, I mean, I love how experimental Nintendo is. We've brought that up a ton here on the show. But yeah, that, that Nintendo 64 controller is just a weird piece of technology, man. Well, and, it, and it's funny, too, because like that analog stick is A, like so not built to last. And then B, when developers started to try to figure out what to do with it, like this is a, a pretty famous story at this point. But when uh, kids started playing Mario Party and like burning circles into their palms. Yeah. <laughs> like... It became an actual problem to the point of Nintendo actually offering protective gloves to people. Like, that's nuts. That's actually nuts. They, they had, like, an actual Mario Party hotline for people in the uh, in the late 90s and offered gloves to people if they requested them to play Mario Party. That's just such a crazy thing. <laughs> it's only a half step above... You know, is playing the Nintendo Wii bad for your health because of the small amount of motion involved? That was that was an <laughs> right. actual news story that ran during the Nintendo Wii's lifespan. Is the Nintendo Wii bad for your health because it requires you to do slight movements? The the whole, you know, we, we all got blisters as kids playing video games. If you didn't get blisters as a kid playing video games, you weren't doing it right. That's fair. I mean, heck, the you talk about like the the NES controller is just like a square, <laughs> <laughs> like just digging into your palm, you know. But um, but yeah, I mean, so so kind of like closing out here. We we have a bunch of comments from the community, but before we get to those, I thought maybe we should just kind of talk about some of our favorite N sixty four memories. And I know we did our we we did talk about the N sixty four way back in episode three. Yeah. Of the show. Yeah, way back in episode three, we did our top five ways the Nintendo 64 changed gaming forever. And we didn't want to rehash a lot of that. We definitely recommend you guys go back and check out that top five from episode three. We talked quite in depth about the legacy of Nintendo 64 bit console. But yeah, going into that, I did mention something also in that that I'm probably going to wind up bringing up here in a few seconds. But uh, yeah, what are, what are some of your favorite in 64 memories buddy yeah i mean the n64 was the first console that i had that felt like it was truly mine and i think i said that during that that segment as well way back then but um growing up my sister and i had to share like the super nintendo was like a shared thing between the two of us but when i got the n64 christmas 1996 that was mine that was my console and this actually I'll bring this up uh, later when we get into community comments, but I related to uh, something that Dan shouts out there because my parents played a prank on me when I got my N64. They gutted the box and they they had me unwrap my N64 for Christmas 1996. I open it and the box is empty. And it's like, what? 
you know, and I wasn't thinking about the box probably being too light or whatever. I was just hyped to have it at all. I probably was the N64 kid at that point. And yeah, they, they gutted it and try And like for a few minutes there, what felt like an eternity, they acted totally clueless. We, we just got it from the store. Like, what, what are you talking about? It's empty. <laughs> like pretending to be confused or whatever. But then, of course, yes, my dad walks out of the bedroom. He's got the N64. He's got the controller, his copy of Mario 64. And just my my mind was blown. I mean, the N64 was such a revolution, man. And this was also something that I mentioned very briefly in that segment as well. But every time I think about the Nintendo 64, I think about my subscription to Nintendo Power at mm-hmm. the time. I was so incredibly excited for the Nintendo 64. I never actually got to have one myself, but I remember getting the VHS tapes from Nintendo Power, those promotional VHS tapes from Nintendo Power, hyping up the new Ultra 64. I actually used to have a promo VHS tape that still called it the Ultra 64, but they occasionally released those. They occasionally sent VHS tapes directly to your house, advertising Nintendo's upcoming consoles and games. As a matter of fact, I got one for Diddy Kong Racing, which I would love to have. Diddy Kong Racing, a phenomenal game from mm-hmm. Rare. But I, like I said, I never got to have one for myself. And I'm going to go ahead and out myself on one thing that I did as a kid, which is a little embarrassing in retrospect. But I would basically just try to seek out anybody who had one. Like, oh, you got a Nintendo 64? Can I come over and play it with you? Right, (laughs) right, totally, yep. And I I don't remember his name, but I was friends with this kid down the street back when I lived in Virginia when I was very, very young. And he had a Nintendo 64. He had Star Fox 64, and I came over a couple times to play it with him. And apparently I got to the point, I don't really remember this completely, but I've been reminded a couple times, but I got... I guess, comfortable to the point that I eventually went over to his house without asking, opened the door, went down to their basement and just started playing their Nintendo 64. (laughs) A friend's mom came downstairs like, "Uh, what are you doing here? I was like, yeah, I just came to play video games. Like my son isn't here. I'm like, yeah, I know. I just came by to play video games. (laughs) I live here now. (laughs) (laughs) So that's, you know, I was very, very young when that happened and I was, it was made very clear to me that that probably wasn't the best thing to start getting in the habit of doing, but it was a Nintendo 64 and I wanted to play it. So it was the coolest thing, man. Yeah. I I had kind of a similar thing where like, and this is what I like to go back to something I was talking about, the multiplayer focus and the kind of like communal focus of the N64, like growing up that that was a total thing. Cause I had one and all the kids on my street had one kids who I, wouldn't know their names today and wouldn't recognize them if I passed them on the street. But back then we were friends, the kids who lived on my block and who lived in the cul-de-sac and whatnot. And like, we would go, it was like a foregone conclusion that after we got off the school bus, we were going home, we were dropping off our backpacks or whatever it was we were doing. And we were running over to one of our houses and we were playing, you know, Pokemon stadium, or we were playing, you know, star Fox 64 or Goldeneye or whatever it was. And I mean, yeah, I, those are cherished memories. I mean, those were simple times, man. Those were the good old days <laughs> as it were. Indeed. But, uh, I do just to kind of, to kind of wrap up our retrospective here, I do want to shout out some of these community comments cause we got some good ones. Uh, a lot of people speaking of the multiplayer thing, shouting out Goldeneye. 
Oh, yes. a lot of people shouting out Goldeneye. That was a huge deal, man. How how can you not shout out Goldeneye, right? If you say the words Nintendo sixty four multiplayer, you are legally obligated to follow that up with a Goldeneye reference. It is in the bylaws, basically. I mean, Goldeneye changed everything. I mean, we we can and probably will at some point do our own Goldeneye retrospective, but um, but that was a huge thing. Uh, for the Nintendo 64, of course. Uh, first one I'll shout out here. I'm not going to get to all these because we did get a huge outpouring of uh, of N64 love in our community. And I did just want to highlight a few of these that just uh, really spoke to me and got like, we got totally 90s on us here. And I, I absolutely love it. I'm going to shout out here. I mentioned this earlier, but Dan, our good buddy Dan from the Retrologic podcast, definitely check them out. He's been on the show before and uh, we love Dan. But Dan says here, my most vivid N64 memory was the bait and switch my dad pulled on Christmas morning when I unwrapped the console. Again, very similar to what happened to me, but he apparently his dad says, wait, it doesn't come with any games? He was a cruel, cruel man. It wasn't <laughs> until I opened my stocking and unwrapped Mario 64 and Shadows of the Empire that I got the joke. <laughs> uh, Shadows of the Empire, old Dash Rindar. Yes, yes. Shout out to the Star Wars games on N64. Yeah. Good games. Star Wars Episode One Racer that they recently released on the Nintendo Switch. Oh, so good. Good games. Good Star Wars games on the N64. Also, I, I can't move on from, from Dan because I just had to, you know, I've already publicly shamed him on this. And I just want to, I just want to say it here in recorded history that like RetroLogic in their latest episode did an N64 themed like top five games on the N64 and nobody on that panel mentioned Banjo-Kazooie and I feel personally attacked uh, <laughs> because of that. It feels like a personal slight against me, Seth. So, you know, I just I just had to shout that out. I mean, we we love you. We love RetroLogic. But man, what the disrespect paid to Banjo Kazooie? I I throw the gauntlet down and I demand that you guys have me back to defend the honor of Banjo Kazooie. You guys better get right. <laughs> I can't hold Seth back forever. That's it. That's it. I'm I'm waiting on my invite to come and defend uh, Banjo Kazooie on Retro Logic. But anyway, all joking aside, we we love those guys. Uh, next thing I'll shout out here is from LPD on the Discord. Good old Liam there. Uh, he says, "Quote." N64 was the first console where, where I was an active fan. This goes back to something you were kind of talking about, Eric. Reading magazines and staying on top of announcements, I remember seeing early previews of games like Hybrid Heaven, Windback, Zelda 64, and following them as best as I could. Didn't really have easy slash solid internet access at that point, so magazines and word of mouth were everything. <laughs> Shout out to video game magazines, man. That was that was our bread and butter back then. Remember video game magazines? Oh, dude, I had so many of them. I would constantly go to stuff like Walden Books. Remember Walden mm. Books? Stuff like that and Borders and Barnes and & Noble and just look at the latest Game Pro. And I loved Game Pro, Nintendo Power, and just everything. There were so... You guys don't understand how big the video game magazine rack used to be this oh, was yeah a couple years before the internet genuinely like a third of the magazine rack was electronics and video games it felt like everybody had their own video game magazine i'm pretty sure i published a few issues at some point in the early 90s <laughs> 
I I have so much nostalgia and, and love and appreciation for video game magazine. That's something that I've long wanted to uh, to do a segment on the show, and maybe we will at some point. But um, but yeah, another one here I've got from our buddy Rob Yapel in the Discord. He says one of my favorite N sixty four memories was sending in a photograph that had to be developed at a store question mark exclamation point <laughs> to Nintendo Power, showing my best time for Mario Raceway and being sent a gold controller. I must have been in fifth grade and better at Mario Kart than I am today. And he actually sent me in photographic evidence of this. He sent us an actual picture of said controller and a letter that he got from Nintendo Power. And man, I I just, I had to tell him, like, you need to put that thing in a display case. That belongs in a museum, sir. But, uh, But that was awesome. And the last one, the last community comment I'll shout out here is from Eric Plunk in the Discord. Uh, He says, a couple of months before the release of Ocarina of Time, I got my dad to pay $5 down at Kmart to, quote unquote, guarantee a gold cartridge copy of the game. When it came time to collect, the clerk informed my dad that they had sold the gold carts and only had the standard gray. Dad proceeded to raise pure heck. I say heck to uh, to keep it PG here. (laughs) And got the store manager involved. They had some more gold cards shipped to them to the store, so Christmas was saved and I got the gold. With the help of the official strategy guide, I proceeded to beat the game within two weeks after the holidays. Man. For everything from like the the dad going crazy to the gold cart to the Kmart shout out here. I mean, what a 90s comment that is. I love it, man. I love it. Well, the Nintendo 64 was very much a product of the 90s. A lot of those, you know, a lot of the third party games were so 90s that it hurts. Like if I put one in and start playing it, I'm afraid I'm just going to grow Jinko jeans out of my legs. I'm afraid that, <laughs> you know, I'm afraid that a surge soda is just going to somehow magically manifest itself in my hand. Yeah, you'll have your, have your surge soda. You'll be, uh, have a zoo book sticking out of your pocket. <laughs> a trapper uh, <laughs> keeper showing up right behind me on the couch. Yep. Yep. Be tripping over a Lisa Frank or something like that, you know? <laughs> <laughs> totally. I love the nineties and and we love the N64. I mean, so I, I just, you know, wanted to shout out some comments from our community, a couple of personal memories to go along with the actual interesting history. And, uh, here's to you N64 25 years. I can't believe how old that makes us, man. But, uh, Dude. yeah, 25 years of N64. I can't wait to look back on 25 years later. But what about you guys? When you look back on the Nintendo 64, what, do you think of? We've already talked about a few of our friends' personal experiences with Nintendo's iconic console, but what are yours? We would absolutely love to hear more stories. So please do reach out to us on Facebook at All In Podcast. Reach out to us on Twitter at All In Podcast. And do please like, follow, and subscribe to All In and Nintendo Podcast on Discord. Join us on Discord. Join the YouTube page. And. Mm-hmm. Also, make sure to like, follow, and subscribe to All In a Nintendo Podcast on whatever streaming service you happen to be listening to our Nintendo Podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or SoundCloud. We have expanded quite a bit in recent weeks, and we would love for you to check out all the amazing content that we are constantly creating for you guys. And for those that have joined us and are checking out all of our content and do make time to make us part of your weekly rotation each and every week, thank you all so much. Namaste. Whoo, man, that was another big one. That was another big episode. But uh, you know what? I, I, I think it. I think we're gonna finally get to, to take a rest. If finally get into this post E three lull a little bit. I mean, we don't really have too much to do in the next week, do we? 
I don't know, man. I don't think we can relax too much. Like we got all these demos. We got the Mr. Sakurai oh, presents right. on Monday. Oh, that's right. I mean, Mario Golf just came out. There is no rest for us, man. Oh. Well, let's at least take a break for a few seconds. Seth, you want to meet me out on the green? Sounds good. Sounds good. Let's uh, let's play a little Mario Golf Super Rush and uh, see if we can see if we can hit the green like Doug Bowser and Phil Spencer. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well. We're going to go out. We're going to play a few rounds, guys, but we will see you right back here next week for another brand new episode of All In, a Nintendo podcast. I have been the Adventures of Bayou Eric. And I have been Seth the Fun Machine. We'll catch you guys next week. We love you all. Bye. Bye.